0: Welcome to Nesson Dormer, where we will uh, be looking at the 1998 World Cup. I'm at Gary Naylor 999, and joining me today are Rob Smythe, hello, and Mike Gibbons. Morning. Now, some say that the media milk World Cups that they go on too long. <laughs> Welcome to part three of our look. France (laughs) 1998. Uh, Gentlemen, we've reached the quarterfinals. And the first one is, uh, well, they tend to be blockbusters, don't they, by uh, the time that we've got eight nations left in a tournament. But um, matches don't get much bigger than these two. It's Italy versus France. Um, Mike, do you want to kick us off with that one?
1: Yeah, another uh, another awkward afternoon for France, um, really. I mean, this is a massive game, isn't it, to get in a quarterfinal? Um, Italy and France. There's also the start of a little um, rivalry between the two, really. I think they, they played each other at four of the next six international tournaments, two of which were finals as well. So you had the Euro 2000 final and the two thousand and six World Cup final. I don't th- I think there's only like one or two players on each side that are a through line in the whole um in the whole thing. But um yeah they would meet with quite some regularity after this. And yeah, this one first up, this is a huge a huge match in the quarters. Uh, France uh made some changes up front for this game. So they, they brought back into the team Stefan Givash, who had played in the group stages. Uh, w- with Yuri Jorkaev tucked in behind him. And that w- that was the uh, front two they used then for the rest of the tournament. Uh, so, yeah, they, they were juggling their striking options constantly, France, trying to find something that worked. Uh, Christophe Dugari was in the squad as well. And uh, a very young uh, David Trezeguet and uh, Thierry Henry uh, as well. And, yeah, very tight game this um couple of chances either side. I think Djokovic dragged one wide in the first half when he was clean through. There's a volley from um, Roberto Baggio. I thought...
2: That's I beautiful. See.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it goes in, what a goal it would have been. It's, um, I think Del Piero chipped in the ball into the area over his shoulder. It was almost David Platt-esque um, in Italia 90, you know, the way he let it come over his shoulder and then volleyed at a goal. And uh, Yeah, it would have been a great goal, but just... Uh, just went wide and uh, yeah, goal was at 90 minutes this game, and then through extra time. So France had to go through another golden goal um, period, so they had the whole uh, whole country on the end of its nerves again. And uh, yeah, goes to penalties.
0: Which uh, is no good. Gra- t- n- Sorry, Ron. Go so we never talk of Italy and France um, as being a clash of kind of footballing philosophies. Um, but I was struck by the the piece we did on on Michel Platini in the previous episode um, that Platini was, if you like, um, marrying two philosophies: the French desire to entertain and be freewheeling and not be quite so serious, with Italy's sort of "I am will" and Catenaccio and defense first. And I think those those two philosophies have come closer together uh in the last 20 years or so um but you've mentioned mike that the italy versus france does come up uh regularly in the latter stages of tournaments and yet it never gets presented as that um clash of cultures um I mean, Rob, is there anything in that or or is it a, a debate for a time when, when France were more also runs than they, they were um, perhaps uh, in most tournaments or in many tournaments before the, the kind of Platini era in the 80s leading on to the 98 side and subsequently the 2018 side? Uh,
2: possibly. I mean, I feel like identity is blurred a bit more, but it's funny actually because the two games, I would say in 98, the two teams were very similar. France Mm. had a magnificent defence. They played two holding players, which was quite unusual in those days. Um, and actually, to be honest, two brilliant defences in those prizes ended 0-0. But by the time they meet in the Euro 2000 final, France were expanded a lot more, you know, Omri's yeah. come of age. And it felt then like it was a real clash of styles um, because Italy had just qualified with that 0 nil draw against the Netherlands with 10 men. So it's interesting that within two years, the kind of... the nature of this game changed quite significantly, mainly because of the way France became a more complete team than they were in 98. I think is maybe the... the um, it, go, go on, mate.
1: Oh, sorry, the uh, because they're on the same continent maybe, I think that that maybe adds into it as well. The kind of classic clash of styles internationally is Italy and Brazil, isn't it? Mm, um, yeah. You know, Italy being the, the masters of defence and then Brazil yeah, you know the Joga Benito and all that. I mean, I think those kind of um, stereotypes have gone out the, the window now. I mean, it's, you know, it's um, you know, neither team plays to that extent anymore. I
0: don't think, but
1: um, yeah, that, I, so that maybe overshadows the differences between uh, between Italy and France. I'd imagine. Uh,
0: I just wonder whether the development between 98 and 2000, the, you know, the 2000 France side, I, I think it's one of the very best I've, I've seen in, in world football. Um, whether that came through the generation who were at, um, and I always get this wrong, Clairefontaine, uh, is that, mm. is, is that because when Thierry Henry did his really excellent BBC documentary about, um, football in the U, uh, he went back to Clairefontaine, went to the room that he and David Trezeguet shared when they were teenagers. And when you look at the careers that those two have had and when you look at the influence, not just in terms of the technical ability of France, P- France's players, which is, it's just absurd you look at France's players, notwithstanding Imerich Report's Laporte's uh, rather disappointing game yesterday. Laporte does not have a cap for France um, this Wesley, uh, is it Wesley, Fafana, uh, coming through at, at Leicester, looks a complete player at 19. And you just wonder whether, whether, um, and Henri and Trezeguet would be the standard bearers in many ways for this, whether that grafting on of the technical, psychological um, motivational aspects of of going to that centre of excellence under Gerard Houllier, wasn't it? Um, whether that brought France closer uh, to Italy, and while Italy not so much stood still, but have always relied on you know the extraordinary histories of its clubs and its its factional, almost at times sec- uh, sectarian um, divisions between north and south, and between the Milan clubs and Juventus and so on whether one of the reasons why Italy have slid back in terms of their ability to take on France in international football might be because they haven't embraced that more systematic scientific holistic approach to developing players um you know, that's that's not really a question i suppose that's a long-winded observation <laughs> but it's it's a it's a kind of Fascinating subject, and I'm sure there's endless articles in France football, and and the, the likes of um, of Filippo Clare will have written extensively on this. But uh, it, it, we're seeing it coming forward in this game, and the fact that it was so close, it was a nil nil. Because Rob, you can take over the narrative if you if you like. Because again, we're in penalties, aren't we?
2: Yeah, which I mean, it's a terrifying prospect for any host, I guess, but. Even more so for Italy, because they'd gone out on penalties in the previous two World Cups. Um, and France actually missed first. Little Azu missed. But as we said in part two, it's like in darts. If, if, a break's not a break unless you hold in the next leg. And Albertini missed the very next penalty. Um, and on it went to 4-3. And then Di Biagio, um hit the bar, I think. Uh, and that was that. But yeah, it's, it's quite strange that um, Maldini said after the game, I've played three World Cups and I've only lost one game in normal time and that was to um to Ireland of course. Um the, the three defeats that put them out of the tournament were all on penalties. Um yeah Mike found a good stat here actually it was the last international for Giuseppe Bergami, sixteen years after he won the World Cup in uh, in eighty two. But a fantastic stat. He never once played in a World Cup qualifier because um eighty two he was about twelve. Eighty six they were holders, eighty ninety they were hosts, ninety four and ninety eight I guess he was in the wilderness until he was um, was picked again.
0: Uh, Mike, you wanted to talk about uh, Bruce Springsteen at this point, didn't you? Oh, hang <laughs> yes, on. No, it's yes. not Bruce Springsteen. It's such an easy mistake to make. It's Alessandro Del Piero.
1: Yeah, I just I wanted to mention the, the World Cup he had, really. I mean, going into this, along with Ronaldo, this was... Um, Kind of set up and advertised to be as if it was going to be Al- Alessandro Del Piero's tournament. He'd been brilliant in the the previous few seasons for Juventus in the Champions League, um, and uh, you know, just wonderful player. But just had a really sort of disappointing tournament in this. I think I think he was carrying a slight injury going into it. Um, he subbed out here after a um, sort of midway through the second half and. Uh, yeah it didn't it didn't really happen from it this tournament it's, it's part of a a series of underwhelming international tournament experiences for him really until he got to the 2006 World Cup and then he had that kind of great moment of redemption against Germany in the semi-final and then I, th- I think he went on to score in the shootout against um, against France in the final but um, yeah just um, a bit of a shame really been, there had been so much expectation about what he might do at France 98 and
2: Hadn't he done well, his cruciate the, the year before?
1: I think he'd had some injury, hadn't he? So he didn't come into it. It's a bit like Shearer, the way Shearer came into it with England. Mm. Um, he came back in the March, I think, didn't he? From yeah. Doing his, his knee. And he was still a real but, you know, wasn't quite the same. No,
2: I, I thought he was never the and, same player. It's still, still lovely to watch, but just just yeah. something something wasn't quite there. But you're right, because he had a stinker in New Year 2000 final, missed two one-on-ones. So you're right. It was nice that he had that moment against Germany.
0: But it was one of those great celebrations. You know, it was reminiscent of Tardelli in, oh, was, in '82. That
2: game uh, was so good. It, yeah.
0: it, it it really it really was, and it was he come on as a substitute, and it was at the end, wasn't it? And um, it was a it was a break, and it was such a lovely ball. Who was it who played the ball? I don't know. It was a
2: reverse pass. It might have been Yakinto or someone.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. And, and he puts it in the top corner, and then he goes on a Jarzino-like <laughs> run. But you could, you, it was one of those really human moments. I felt where all of the pent-up frustration of being the, the kind of glory boy for '98 who didn't really come through. It was all that redemption. And I you know, people say that redemption stories are either false narratives because. You know, it's not really what it seems to be. We only read them backwards, or that they're overplayed. But I can never get enough redemption stories in sport, mm-hmm. and um, that is one of the 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 greats. In that moment, you saw a, a, a personality, you saw hopes uh, being realised, you saw fears assuaged, and if you don't have. 1998 you don't have 2006 for Del Piero and that's in in these days where we're stuck inside I think that's that's something that's worth holding on to because inside those of us who are fortunate enough um, we know that we'll have a 98 which may be 2020 but we also know that we'll have a a 2006 as well uh, from Del Piero's uh, perspective so it was lovely to see.
1: Um, can I just make a quick point on the penalties? Actually, the uh, to the the five that France took, uh, Lizarazu missed, uh, Zidane scored, Blanc scored, but um, Trezeguet and Henri, they they took penalties well, and they both scored. And they were both teenagers at this point; they were both nineteen years old. That's an incredible amount of pressure on two young players. I mean, two brilliant young players, as it, oh, as it turned out. To didn't Jokic say he was
2: tired or something? That's why he didn't take one.
1: Yeah, well, yeah he actually still on the pitch, Jokic yeah. at the end. Yeah, yeah. That's surprising but um yeah two teenagers and your five penalty takers that's uh, yeah,
2: especially I, when you're I, the host yeah
0: it's just huge isn't it and i i heard jim white on talk sport uh, a couple of weeks ago say um, about uh, the the upcoming january window or something saying well we we just don't know you know the potential of some of these players who are, are who are playing in in Europe. I mean, who knew that Thierry Henry had that potential when he went to Arsenal? And I felt like saying, "Well, anybody who watched the World <laughs> Cup in ninety eight did," you know. Um, but that's uh, that's uh, what we what we've learned to call the MSM for our, our sins, and uh, that's a loaded term if ever there there was one. But we're not the MSM; we are Ness and Dorma Pod, and um, we can move on. I think to um, to another clash of styles in in many ways. Um, the, the the Masters, and in some ways, the the wannabes, if we if we were looking a generation earlier. Um, Brazil against Denmark. Um, Rob?
2: Yeah, it was a really entertaining game, this. So it ended 3-2 to uh, Brazil. Denmark caught them cold with a quick free kick in the second minute. And then, I think even though Denmark were always in the game, you always kind of felt Brazil would win. But scored a nice goal. Uh, Rivaldo was put through by Ronaldo and got this lovely lazy chip over Schmeichel from a tight angle. So two at half time there. <laughs> then Roberto Carlos, like, uh, an absolutely farcical piece of defending, tried an overhead kick in his own box, <laughs> made a made a Horlicks of it and Lauder spanked it, spanked the half volley in. So 2-2, two, two, but then Rivaldo, who was just emerging, had had that season at Barcelona, um, and was just becoming that kind of monstrous player who dominated for about four or five years. Uh, scored with a really good low drive from about 25 yards. I think there was a few question marks about Schmeichel, although I think with Rivaldo, he really arrowed these shots in. They were right in the corner. So I, I would give Schmeichel the benefit of the doubt there. But um, it's a it's strange one because if you actually watch the game, Denmark were always in it. You know, like Reaper hit the um, bar in the last minute. But as I said, you just always kind of felt Brazil, just because of reputation, really, that they would have enough. But... No, it was a terrific game. Brazil's defending was was shambolic at times. I mean, Roberto Carlos in particular. Um, and again, you kind of, see, I suppose, kind of sums up their tournament. Really, they were it, it sort of didn't. I think at the time, the attacking brilliance overshadowed just how useless they were at the back. But eventually, it caught up with them um, when they didn't have the attacking brilliance fall back on in the final.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was that was my my feeling. Is that the, the kind of approach or resources that, that say you're gonna win quarterfinals three two or we'll win the semi final four three, sooner or later that, that train, you know, hits the buffers because you come up against a side uh and they'll they'll be able to to blunt an attack that's either weakened or is or is having an off day or two, and you just can't keep uh, leaking those goals. It's it's one of the the joys of of tournament football, and one reason why I I, I like um, World Cups that that do drag on a little bit, you know, and there's so many matches because there are times when the look or the um chancing of, of some sides that it, it, it runs out and the very best sides you know they, they can sustain that for a long time. What? But I uh, to win a World Cup uh you've got to be you've got to be pretty good from one to eleven. Although uh, no it's not one to eleven. But yeah, well, one to You 20, don't often flip yeah.
2: them. Yeah I was gonna say Denmark played some really good stuff in this game and also obviously against Nigeria. It's kind of underrated in the um danish history we tend to talk about two teams the 86 team that charmed everyone and won the group of death and the 92 team that won the euros and the 98 team is kind of forgotten but actually they got to the quarterfinals of the world cup which is still denmark's best run and did so playing some really brilliant football it was the one time at a major tournament you had both Laudrup brothers together um i think this was michael's last game
1: um yeah they both both retired after the did they? the Brian yeah. as well yeah
2: um but no a really decent side and um Kind of, we, we talked yesterday about teams fading away. Sometimes, you know, after a big group say, victory like Norway, and but Denmark kind of went out with a bang, really.
0: Yeah, I, I, my memory of it—I'll uh, come to you in a sec, Mike, because uh, I, I know you'll have things to say about the Lajduk brothers and, and others. But my memory of it is possibly a little bit as where we are at the moment with Belgium. Is that it, the Denmark side were more than a flash in the pan? Um, as you say, they had they had tournaments where they were unlucky and outstanding and by 1998 we we'd sort of taken for granted that Denmark were going to come and play attractive football and be sort of permanent residents in the knockout stages of of uh, football tournaments and of course there's never a guarantee of that kind of thing but it does mean that we we don't appreciate uh how how these rel- nations with relatively small resources who have to deal with players flying into sort of training camps at short notice for qualifying matches and we just think that it's going to continue to be like this and and it really isn't and perhaps that's one reason why we should enjoy sort of golden generations when they come along portugal belgium now but denmark in the past and instead we kind of we kind of snidely sort of wait for the golden generation to go and say, "Oh, they are. They're not quite as good as we thought they thought they <laughs> were," and so on. And I think that's a, that's a shame because because when when something does come together um, for a a, a nation that, that isn't calling upon the resources of one of the uh, top four elite leagues in Europe or a, a population base that's fifty million or more or something, um, I think we do. We don't celebrate them as much as, as we should. Um, and to have, you know, two, you know, it's like having Steve War and Mark War, wasn't it, having Brian <laughs> Loudrup and Michael Loudrup. So I want to say a few words about those two and, and whether my uh, paying of praise to the golden generations uh, has got any value in it, Mike.
1: Well, actually, that this game, I think it is Michael Laudrup's last ever game of professional football. Because so I think he um, he'd retired from playing for Ajax the season at the end of the ninety-seven ninety-eight season. Um, so this, yeah, and a bit like Zidane you know, the way he retired in the in the World Cup in 2006, so, you know, in, in very different circumstances <laughs> to, to Laudrup. Um, yeah, this was the last time we'd saw him. And we'd, we'd waited 12 years to see Laudrup at an international tournament, um, or oh, 10 years actually, because he'd played at Euro 88, hadn't he? Um, but he'd had that really storied club career in the meantime. So um, yeah, it was just really nice to see him you know, have that one kind of final go at the World Cup. Um, and as Rob says, yeah, the first time he got to play with um, with their uh, with his brother at a major tournament, and have, having missed out in '92 as well, I mean, you know, what what, what a tournament not to go to. Um, so yeah, it was, it was nice for him that he had the uh, the last moment in the sun um, with Denmark. Just quickly on Brazil, I, was like, oh, I find it so strange that they were so bad defensively in this tournament because individually their defenders are really good, you know. I know he made a shocking error in this game, but Roberto Carlos was all right defensively. Cafu's a really good defender. They had Aldair and Junior Baiano, I think, with the central defensive partnership. They had Dunga in front of them. And yet they just they just shipped goals in, I think, most of the games in this tournament. I think they only kept um, one queen sheet, didn't they? Mm. Quite strange. And um, yeah, a couple of really nice goals from Rivaldo in this. Uh, I, I think his what turns out to be the winning goal is just a really good strike It's arrowed in the corner right yeah. off the post. Um he developed a bit of a knack for um flummoxing Schmeichel from distance. he um he did him again in the Champions League, I think about three months um three months later he sent him the wrong way on a free kick from um thirty yards out, I think. <laughs> and, and stuck it in the opposite corner. Um so he had a he had a really good game and yeah Rivaldo's um peak years were between these two World Cups really so I think he's he's, I wouldn't say he's airbrushed out of history as one of Brazil's World Cup greats but he's he's probably not talked about as much as he should be Um, Mm -hmm. when they when they did win it in 2002 he scored five goals in that tournament but that tournament became all about Ronaldo's uh, redemption and winning the golden boot and coming back after all those uh, terrible injuries he had. it's um, uh, Worth a quick chat about Bebeto, I think, as well, because he, yeah. he came into the team very late in this, um, or oh, sorry, late in the build-up to this. So Romario had to pull out with injury. Or well, did he pull out? Or was he dropped uh, from the squad because he was think, injured? I can't. You might know memory, role, I think know, he broke, I can't a, quite remember, but, um, broke his but It leg. was meant to be Ronaldo and Romario.
2: Yeah, I think he broke his leg. Then he said he was fit. And they left him out. Didn't, didn't he paint yeah. some abusive graffiti on a toilet door or something? I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> um,
1: but for for the for the sort of eighteen months leading up to the World Cup, well, for, um, when Romario wasn't injured, I mean the two of them, Romario and Ronaldo, they just had some brilliant moments together. In uh, in taking apart defenses, there's so a, uh, there's a
2: great story from Gary Neville about when he played centre-back against him in Le Tour Noir and he said basically, while the ball was at the other end, while him and the other England defenders just wheezing and desperately trying to get some oxygen, Ronaldo and Romario just standing there cracking jokes to each other and then suddenly the ball come up and they would click and they'd be off. He said it was just uh, like mesmerising. Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll so just show the, you how, the... sh- how shallow I am. It's my memories of uh, Bebeto and uh, Rivaldo um, are the Bloody rocking the baby uh, celebration, which may have been at this World Cup, it may have been at a later one, but I think Babetto was one of the prime suspects Yeah, it was 94, wasn't it? Yeah, 94, and four, yeah,
2: Rivaldo. The thing with Rivaldo is, I think he was partly um, uh, the uh, partly his reputation is because of that fast with um, against Turkey when he got Alpine sent off. Yeah, in yeah. But I agree That's, with Mike.
0: That, that was that was I, what I was going think... to raise Is that my memory. <laughs> my main memory of him, although I have other memories and he was a a really outstanding player, but he he suffers a little bit because Ronaldinho, who followed him, was even more outstanding.
2: Between between probably Maradona and Messi, I don't think any player terrified me as much when they were playing against my team as Pete Rivaldo. He was just, when he was on one, I mean, it's obviously that immortal hat-trick against Valencia to get him in Champions League. Yep. He was just terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I agree with Mike, I thought he was... His peak wasn't as long as some, but um, yeah, for that four-year period, he was f- absolutely brilliant.
0: He, he was indeed. Mike, have you anything to add on that uh, quarterfinal before we progress to the next?
1: No, it's just it was just cracking Friday night entertainment, this. I remember being... Um... I think I, I was out on—I think it was someone's birthday was just—and you know, being twenty or whatever I was—it just this monstrous kind of overindulgent pub crawl. And I just remember <laughs> catching bits of the game in, e- in each um, in each pub that we went into, and it felt like every time we went to a different pub, there'd been another goal. And it's, oh, it's, you know, it's just going up in uh, the score was going up by the number of pubs that we went to. But um, well, yeah, fantastic three- game.
0: 3-2 is such a glorious scoreline because 4-3 sounds farcical like there's going to be some Keystone Cops defending and 2-1 you get too many of them but 3-2 is right in the Goldilocks particularly, zone
2: Particularly if both teams lead
0: at one point Oh, even better game. Even better Absolutely right, well we'll move to anything but and Just another 2-1 got, oh, Yeah, just any <laughs> old other 2-1 and I shall refuse to repeat the uh, the star performer and uh, key protagonist uh, of this match's uh, name uh, three times in a row. Although how I'm holding back from it, I do not know. Um, but we'll we'll start with you, uh, Mike. Uh, the Netherlands against Argentina, another absolute lip-smacking quarterfinal.
1: Well, where do you start on this? <laughs> <think> we could... <laughs> We could do an hour here, easy. Uh, I promise the listeners we, we won't go that deep on it. <laughs> but um, yeah, I would say slides comfortably into the pantheon of great World Cup games this. Um, just a superb afternoon of entertainment. A glorious sunny day in Marseille as well. Uh, completely still. Perfect You know conditions for football. Yeah, you kind of sensed in the first 10 minutes, I think, that this was going to be something Pretty special. I think uh, Ronald de Boer hit the hit the post in the first um, the first ten minutes. It's very very open. You got two very attractive passing teams. Two great generations of um, players. I would argue maybe that since they won their last international tournaments, which is uh, the European Championship for the Dutch in eighty eight and the Copa America for Argentina in ninety three. I think these two teams represent the best teams that those countries have had since then. Um, they, they may have got further in, in, you know, in other tournaments, but um, I certainly think that Kluivert was back in the team uh, for the Dutch. Bergkamp then moved back into a more, a more uh, natural position where they could get the best out of him. And uh, the first goal in this game is a really lovely goal. Actually, it's overshadowed by what what happens later, <laughs> or one of the goals that's scored later on, which we'll come to. But um, it's Ronald de Boer. Dances between a couple of players in midfield, clips a cross over to Bergkamp, who cushions a lovely header straight into the path of Clavitz. Uh, it, it looks easy what it Bergkamp does here, it but doesn't. it's it's, su- it's such a deft touch to it's guide so. it into Clavitz's path, and it's a first-time finish. It's just oh, it's a wonderful goal. It's it absolute really
2: genius, Bergkamp's touch, like a square-headed through ball improvised in about. <laughs> Half a second. It's abs and also, yeah, no, it's just genius.
1: Yeah, and to take the pace off that yeah, ball exactly. as well because the ball really, really Wh- pinged Yeah, it no,
2: I think it's, it's just it's- a- absolutely stunning because he always says that he did two great things that day and people only remember one.
0: And um, yeah,
2: he'll be thrilled to know that I agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> just then, I go um, back to you, uh, yeah. just
0: before I go back to you, Mike. Um, one of the things that we've mentioned in passing a little bit, uh, which perhaps we we don't make enough of is that the kind of aesthetic experience of watching these matches. And um, we mentioned in the, in the previous uh, part, the, the, the joy of matches kicking off in the bright sunlight and, and finishing under floodlights. But your, your point there about a still day in Marseille, I've, I've been lucky enough to travel the length of France, but in, in a transit van um, on a train and also on a motorcycle and You start in the kind of killing fields of, of the First World War in the Pas de Calais, and it's all a little grey, a little grim. Um, but by the time you get sort of three-quarters of the way, you know, it's somewhere like uh, Arles, but it's a bit more than three-quarters, uh, but there's other places, Angoulême, places like that, you're beginning to change your whole sort of sense of being. And by the time you get to the uh, Mediterranean coast in the south of France... You're just transformed it's the it's the light it's the heat it's the sensual um overload of stuff and I think that did play a part in in this match, not necessarily for the players but in in terms of our appreciation um and it's a, it's not too much it's not where you can you know you have to talk about the humidity and the altitude of Mexico City and stuff like that it's just the most perfect of places for a, a human being to appreciate the the kind of environment of, of light and heat and everything else that you're moving in and I think that comes through the television and I think in this match with that blazing sunlight um, I think that w- this is one of the the times at which we we really appreciate uh, that and it was it was, you know, etched in our our memory as as particularly the Denouement of this match, but um, the whole ninety minutes. So I'll go back to you after that diversion, mate.
1: Yeah, I mean, even even the kits. I think, you know, particularly yeah. uh, the Dutch, the day-glow orange kit. It just kind of glows. So in that sunshine, it just kind of beams through the screen at you, doesn't it? Um, so yeah, after Clavet's goal, Argentina were level within uh, five minutes. So it's a really nicely timed through ball from Veron uh, to Claudio Lopez who I think is just on side I mean if there was VAR now it's probably his, half of his shoulder would probably be, be off or something but it's timed perfectly he goes straight through he nutmegs um, Van vandazar as well as at one point with a finish he looks like he gets a bit too close to him and he's going to mess it up but then he very calmly just rolls it through Van der Zaar's um, legs and brings the game level um there were more chances after that. Uh, Argentina hit the post twice more. Ortega rasps a shot off the post from about um, 25 yards out. There's a chance in the second half of to where um, he kind of breaks one-on-one with, and he cuts inside, I think it's Stammy cuts inside, and he just murders a shot off the uh, off the far post. It hits the inside of the post, goes around the back of Van der Zeele, who hasn't even had time to throw a hand at it. And bounces out for a throw-in. I think it would have been would have been such a great goal. Um, One thing that tells you what a great game this is actually is that it wasn't destabilized really by the fact that there were two red cards in it. So it's I can't excuse me. I can't remember the name of the Dutch player that got sent off. um, Arthur Newman. Arthur Newman. Yeah, yeah, he got sent off for two uh, two yellows um, midway through the second half. And then, in the very last minute of the game, uh, Ariel Ortega goes around uh, Stam in the in the Dutch penalty area. Stam brings him down. It it should be a penalty. um, I I disagree. But the referee, you disagree?
2: I think there's a slow. There's one. I looked at this. There's one slow-motion replay. We clearly see it's a dive. I think. I don't know. But yeah.
1: Yeah. I. I mean. I I have to say. I I thought he caught it. Maybe that's slow motion making it appear. Mind you, Um, these days,
2: yeah, I haven't a clue what's a penalty anymore. Well, yeah, yeah,
1: everything's up in the air now. And then um, we we had an interesting chat in the last um, pod about the football's got this strange thing about retaliation, hasn't it? So it will, you know, it's got a zero-tolerance policy for retaliation Mm. for, say, something like what Beckham did. But, you know, a thundering challenge through the back of someone, it's it's just a yellow card and it's a a kind of wild... um, variance in the levels of aggression going on there but um, especially what- around
0: that time i think it was almost a transitional yeah. time from the kind of anything goes era of the 80s through to yeah. a pretty harsh uh, era now where you almost don't you need to adopt an, an aggressive attitude is often enough to be uh, yeah. a red card which i i agree with by the way but it was a transitional time where where often it felt like it was the, the victim who was being sent off rather than the perpetrator, yeah. Yeah,
1: well, um, the, the perpetrator in the Argentina red card couldn't have done more to get sent off, really. So Va- <laughs> Van der, Van der Sar runs over to, to Bollock Ortega for diving. And Ortega just stands straight up um, and just plants his head. He just jumps straight up, right underneath Van der Sar's chin. It's like an uppercut from... I don't know Mike Tyson or something. It just drop drops Vandersaar straight on the <laughs> on the floor. Um, on yeah, Ortega gets a uh, a straight red card. So then it's ten on ten, and the game hasn't really got time to reset. Then, um, before it drifts into the uh, the final minutes, and the the ball goes to Frank De Boer, and I think I'll, I'll let uh, I'll let Rob take over here for the uh, the, the the denouement of this game.
2: Well, one thing to say, I mean, everyone remembers Bergkamp's amazing goal, but one thing to say, he was having a stinker, like a real stinker, um, which I find quite interesting. Even, so I looked at this one. So basically, between the red cards for Newman and Ortega, he touched the ball three times in 11 minutes. Once he continued to throw in with a tackle, twice he misplaced simple passes. Um, The second one, which actually led to the Ortega penalty appeal that got him sent off. Then in the 53 seconds between Ortega being sent off and his goal, he tried to play a pass to Overmars, kicked it against his standing foot, and put our <laughs> on the break. So it's fascinating in that context. I don't know whether yeah. that freed him up to just try anything— uh, who knows? But um, yeah. So Frank de Boer, I mean, I'm sure everyone could picture the goal: this, this raking crossfield pass, a long crossfield pass. It's like, it's like a, a study in the difference in a long pass, and a long ball. Um, ah, yes. And then three, three touches from Bergkamp controls it while he's. Halfway in the air, you know. I'm surprised his fear of flying can kick in. Um, controls it brilliantly on his instep, touches it away from my and then just flicks it past Roa. I mean, it's difficult this because I know some people think it's slightly overrated goal. I, I don't really, because I think partly the, the quality of all three touches and the speed with which he does it, but so much is about context as well. The last minute of a World Cup quarter final, and also it was almost like, um, Two, Not like screwing two goals in a minute, but like literally a minute, two minutes earlier, Netherlands were hanging on. They were a man down. It was one all. They were hanging on. And suddenly, Ortega sent off and then bang, and they're pretty much through. It's the 89th minute. I mean, it's just a, a, the most euphoric moment. Um, and I, I don't think it's Bergkamp's best. Well, I think if you, if you just isolate the quality of the goals, I think his best goal is the one at Newcastle. But when you add the context,
0: I, I think this is his best goal. I would I would concur with that. But um, I think
2: Mike has a slightly different
0: <laughs> Yeah. I I'm gonna bring Mike, Mike drink. in on it in a in a moment, but I that ball is in the air for an eternity because it travels 70, 80 yards, I think, to, a, to a
2: stretch a... limo of a pass, as Chris yeah.
0: Fanny called it. <laughs> but all that time the ball is in the air, all of your instincts, it's the last minute World Cup quarter final, the score is at one one. Your heart is saying, faster, faster, faster. And yet, one of these things that makes these these elite sports people sort of a separate species, is that they're able somehow to make the heart go slower. And so you have the delicacy of that touch, the conception of what he's going to do next, and then it's execution and to be able to, to do that in those circumstances is it's almost beyond imagination for for those of us who are mere civilians but- uh, looking up at olympus where these uh, these superstars ply their trade because it, it's it's not instinctive the ball is there hanging in the air for an eternity and you're thinking ev- well, 80% of the Dutch population are watching me here. Um, there's all of this going on. There's my teammates. Now is my time. And then they deliver it. It's it's just absolutely extraordinary. And perhaps more than than other uh, examples of famous World Cup goals, because that, that pass is hanging in the air for so long, and then because unlike... Uh, Van Basten's famous goal in 88 isn't just a kind of Hail Mary that that is brilliantly executed. It needs thought. It needs um, that that slowing of the heart rate in order to deliver what he'd imagined he was going to do. To me, it's right up there at the very highest level of goal scoring.
2: It fascinates me how much players can process in a split second. Maradona always talks about his goal against England, how... He recalled, in the moment he's about to go around Shilton, he recalled a similar chance at Wembley when he poked at the other side and missed six years earlier. I mean, Bergkamp, I think Bergkamp likes his own mythology up to a point, but I think there's also validity in pretty much everything he says. And he talks about all the things he factored, even down to the fact he controlled it with his instep rather than the side of his foot. Because if he controls it with the side of his foot, it'll go just too close to Ayala. If he controls it with the instep in front, then Ayala has to come across so he can touch it past him. it just fascinates me how, and there are so many examples. You know, there are loads of messy ones as well. I'm sure. It fascinates me how much, how fast a player's brain works in that situation.
0: Yeah, and it it, it does. You know, and I, I can get a little over romantic. I know at these times. But I think the metaphor of being a, a separate species is 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 worth it because it almost looks literally like a separate species at times that they're able to do this stuff, and you know, football is one of the the sports that we've all had a go at, and that you can go right now on a Sunday morning and see people having it. Well, maybe not now, but you know, to Hackney Marshes and you can see players. So we know the 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 distance there is between the rest of the human species and these players who are able to do that. You can even see it on the same field at times, you know, when a a center half, you know, sort of breaks into the box and then scuffs one past the post or something. And if you can't delight in that, if you can't really appreciate the presence of genius, it's like going to a, a gallery, seeing a Picasso and saying, well, you know, he hasn't got the nose in the right place there, has he? It's a fair enough, Kind of position, but dear me, your world's diminished uh, as a result. But Mike, you have a different view. Tell us about your diminished world, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll just i'll
1: I'll preface this just by saying I don't in any way think this is a shit goal. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's it's a fantastic goal. You know, obviously it is. It's one of the the, the handful of best goals scored in this World Cup. I think what. The point I'm trying to make about this really is that um, I just I find it surprising when people hold it up as the greatest maybe Dutch international goal of all time or Bergkamp's international uh, sorry best goal of all time. I mean for for me the the greatest goal ever scored in the Netherlands shirt is by Van Basten in Euro '88. I, I think the best goal I've ever seen Bergkamp score is the one at Newcastle. Um, the reason for that is what, what he did at Newcastle, I just thought, wow, yeah, I've never seen that before. You know, I, I've never I still seen can't get my head around that.
2: it. It's, like it's, a brain, it's a complete brain buster, that girl. Even now, I must have watched it hundreds of times and I still can't quite get my head around what he does and how he calculates it. I, I agree with you that yeah. in isolation, that's a better goal because of the level of um, yeah. imagination.
0: Uh, yeah, I, and I'll, I'll, throw do, I, his, I'll throw in his hat trick at Leicester, the triptych, which was just. There's the a myth about that. I mean, that's there's a myth about that, that.
2: All three were in the goal of the month, one, two, three, um, and it was not actually true. It's um, so I feel like a bit of a buzz killer now. But um, so basically, <laughs> two of them were, and one was I think a solo goal at Southampton. So he did get one, two, three, but not for the hat trick. Um, but anyway, yeah,
0: yeah. But I, I don't but know. Mate, I said that. Continue your point.
2: Um.
1: Yeah, so actually, speaking of the Leicester hat trick, actually, so Birdcat he scores a very uh, yeah. well similar yes, goal to the to the one is. he scores here in that Leicester thing. Obviously, I, I take the point about um, context. It's interesting what you said about him having a stinker, actually, Rob. It's the same as true. Of Gascoigne at Euro '96, yeah, you often was find it dreadful. Yeah, dreadful in that game against Scotland. He also, was actually about to be substituted and then just kind of did that out of
2: also absolutely um, nothing. Ryan Giggs' goal against Arsenal, he was having I mean, an absolute beast of a game. It's interesting. I wonder if that's somehow, I, I'm sure this is a slight generalisation, but I wonder if sometimes he just frees people up um, just to try mm. things. I don't know. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And I think, yeah, so that. this is, yeah, it's a wonderful three-touch finish this. I mean, uh, you often hear people say oh, oh, they don't know which touch is the best. I mean, it's got to be the first touch. I mean, yeah. to k- kill that ball out of the sky like that is just... Uh, it's just absurd really to be to be able to control a football like that going at that pace, dropping out of the you know out of the sunshine like that, and then yeah, he cuts inside and it's a nice finish, and i think it's elevated as well um in the u k by barry Davis' yeah, commentary i think good, i think yeah. Lee, lee's made this point before about you know when Barry loses it or if John Motson loses it, you know you know you've seen um you've seen something special i mean yeah i do i do think yeah, you know, it's a really good goal. I just, I'm just a bit surprised sometimes when people they go on about it like think, they've never seen anything better than it. Uh, yeah, a, well, I don't even think it's his best goal. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. I
2: think the reason I mm. like it so much is that, broadly speaking, and I know it sounds a bit pretentious, but we think of football in two ways: football as art and football as a results business. And this is yeah. kind of right in the middle of that Venn diagram. A last minute winner in a World Cup quarter final scored with poetic brilliance. I think that's why it appeals so much. Um, but I, I know what you mean. I think there's a bit of, um, people love to romanticise Dutch football, don't they? Um, and I think there's an element of that. You know, I think had, say, say had Rivaldo scored it, for example, someone who had the ability to, I mean, he almost scored a, an even better and not dissimilar goal for Barcelona in 2001 one two. I, I don't think it would be quite as celebrated. I think it's something about Dutch mm. football and specifically about um, the perception of Bergkamp that Probably elevates it in in the way people,
0: yeah. Well, it, it, in yeah. some ways, in some ways, it was it was the opposite of Renson Brinks hitting the the post in the seventy eight final. In mm. that, that was so mundane, um, and yet that lost them a World Cup. And here was something so absurdly brilliant that it didn't win them. Obviously, it didn't win them a World Cup, but it was it it was in some ways a counterpoint. And for those of us who who saw the 74 and 78 sides you almost wanted to will into existence uh redemption isn't the right word but a counterbalance to to put the the history books back in order and in some ways to see dutch brilliance rewarded and they had been rewarded in 88 but this was a this was a world cup um it it, it set the world back on its axis in some ways um you know this was this was a dutch number 10 you know i know cruyff wore 14 but he was a 10 in lots of ways so he he was he was unique so he, he does not really fit into any categories but there was a a sense that this is this is what we should be seeing it's what should have happened when renson hit, hit the hit the post and it's what should have happened in 74 when when admittedly a a brilliant but pragmatic german side were uh, defeated the, uh, the the glorious uh, Glorious cloud burst of orange that that was the seventy four Dutch side, um, so I think all of that all of that certainly plays into my emotional reaction to the goal, and if sport isn't about emotional reactions in your brilliant analogy of the, the Venn diagram, Rob, then it, it 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 isn't about enough. I won't say it's not about it isn't about anything, but I will say it's not about enough.
2: I just want to echo one thing Mike said about just what a beautiful game of football this was i mean there was the odd bit of cynicism obviously there's always going to be that with diving and everything but there was no kind of tactical negativity or anything it's really rare you get that environment where both teams are so kind of confident in their ability and comfortable in their own skin there's just a real kind of made the best team win yeah. attitude about the game and i think that's incredibly rare particularly uh in a game of this importance um and yeah it was a fantastic game of football i think one of the reasons France 98 is remembered or should be remembered fondly is that you had three all-time classics in the knockout stages, um, Argentina-England, Argentina-Netherlands and Brazil-Netherlands. Um, and uh, that's quite rare to get, there, certainly in modern tournaments. Um, and this year, I personally think Argentina-England probably the best of the three, but you could easily make a case for this as being the, the best game since since 86, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I think, think I'm going to uh,
1: I'm going to have to concede the argument of- <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to uh, um be able to talk you around but if, I, if I could just make a final point actually about of the, course, mate. the Netherlands and Argentina I think uh, I mentioned at the top that I, I I think these these two teams uh represent the best iterations of uh these two countries since they last won an international tournament. I often think about this in the in you know, other context of England of like oh, why haven't we won a tournament in so long? And it's a national disgrace and stuff. If you think about like, the players that the Netherlands have had since nineteen eighty eight, mm. since they won, and since Argent- the players Argentina have had since ninety three, since they won the Copa America, if you- and if you're really honest about it, and you weigh that up against the players of England have had over the same time, if you just think, well, they can't do it. I mean, why, why on earth do you think, you know, yeah. England yeah, would be yeah. able to win an international tournament, you know? So, and in that so time, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Argentina. Yeah, Argentina have won, I think, five World Youth Cups. They've had Lionel Messi, and they've not been able to get over the line in any international tournament. And the, you know, the Dutch have had some amazing players, and and this team particularly, I just think was was definitely capable of, um, you know, talk. I mean, we talk in this country about the golden generation that didn't do it, but I mean, I, when you when you put that team up against, I don't know, this Dutch one, I just I don't I don't think they compare at all.
0: I mean, the counter argument to that is the the one that always gets brought up is the the Greeks who won in was it two thousand and four? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but I I would also put up um, many German players. I mean, the, the Germany sides that have won uh, major tournaments they've all had outstanding players, um, but they've all had quite a few journeymen, and um, you you would look at, at some of those sides and think. Well, those guys have got, you know, elite international tournament medals, and you know, Mascherano, Messi. <laughs> to, uh, you know, you, you can just pick them, pick them out one after another that that they haven't. Uh, and it's that it's that extraordinary alchemy of of team sport, which means that you you simply can't bring the Harlem Globetrotters to the party, and and expect them to win. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. And, uh, it's why it keeps delighting us and why the, the, you know, I say it more about cricket, but I also say it about football, but the the more I know about these, uh, these sports, the less I understand, um, it's because it's, it, it, it just keeps turning a different face to you. And those faces multiply when you have a, a greater knowledge of it, because we just don't know. We really do not know. Um, but that takes us to Germany. Uh, Germany against Croatia, um, the imperial phase, the slightly frightening uh, phrase that was used earlier, uh, crashes down in this match. So, um, Rob, do you want to start us with the fourth of the quarterfinals? Yes,
2: so um, I think it was a, a quite a, a good day for England fans with Simeone and Argentina going out and then Germany getting stuffed by Croatia. But this, this game's a strange one. It looks like a thrashing 3-0, but actually... Two of the goals came in the last ten minutes, and Germany had ten men for more than half the game. Christian Werns was sent off just for half time. I think a bit harshly, probably maybe a red card in twenty twenty, but I certainly don't think it was in ninety eight. Um, and there was a kind of double whammy in injury time. Robert Jarni scored a really good goal, uh, kind of low cross shot. And second half was kind of Germany actually played pretty well with ten men. I think I think Harmon hit the post. I'm not sure, exactly sure who it was. But there wasn't much in it, and then just as often happens in these games, particularly down to ten men, it kind of ran away from them towards the end. Vlahovic scored a, another really good cross shot, the outside of the foot, really kind of nonchalant, and then Suker, who by this stage was pretty much scoring in every game, um, scored a quite a jaunty third, kind of danced around people in the box. So it looked like a thrashing, but it was a bit, uh, it was a bit closer than that. I mean, it was a, it was a nice um, bit of revenge for Croatia because they'd gone out of Euro 96 at the same stage to Germany and also had a man set off themselves then. Um, Germany were a really old side. We were talking about this in part two, how they had, you know, Kürbke, Mateus, Jung Kohler, Hassler, Bierhoff, Klinsberg, all 30 plus. Mateus would be, I think, in the 82 squad, never mind 86, 90, 90, 94. Um, But yeah, just kind of, they've they've been hanging on a bit through mental strength, really, coming from behind to draw with Yugoslavia and beat Mexico. Uh, and it was just with 10 minutes was a bit too much but i don't i don't think they were embarrassed in the way they would be embarrassed in year 2000 when they were a complete shambles uh, i just think kind of a few things went against them and croatia were pretty uh clinical when they got chances
0: yeah um, i think you you're absolutely right that it was one of those games where the scoreline doesn't entirely reflect the uh, the the 90 minutes because the game did go away from germany in the last 10 but you know there's a lot of us who, who got used to the idea that it was it would be germany taking the game away in the in the last 10 minutes rather than croatia taking the game away but you're right 10 against 11 uh old tiring players perhaps players themselves who knew that they were not the players they'd been you know as you say 10 years ago never mind 4 years ago so um it was it was coming it also uh, meant mike, just one oh, quick go, thing for mike
2: no go, it also meant that france avoided playing Germany in the semi-final which although Germany weren't a great side I think would have induced a certain amount of terror given that uh, West <laughs> Germany had beaten them in 82 and 86 at the same stage
0: Yes um, I think that's uh, that's certainly a point worth making, Mike
2: uh, Yeah just a
1: couple of quick bits on this um, so Ro- Robert Yarny, who scored, um who scored the, the first goal for Croatia, he'd actually signed for Coventry City just before the World Cup uh which which was a bit of a coup for Coventry but then he he went he went on to have such a good World Cup that he transferred to Real Madrid before <laughs> before we <he> could <laughs> before we could actually get on the pitch at, um at Highfield Road um so uh yeah yeah never got to see him in uh, in sky blue in the uh, in the Premier League and um yeah this is a bit of a revenge match for Croatia as well because they they played um Germany at the quarterfinals, finals Euro 96 and they could have, they could have um, they could have conceivably taken them on and, and, and beaten them. And they they got drawn into a bit of a kind of niggly match that was full of fouls, and um, uh, they were the ones that went down to ten men in that game, and um, that game got away from them. So um, yeah, in Croatia's eyes, that that put right that wrong, and uh, yeah, this is the end really for an old, an old German team. I think um, uh, about half the team were into their or over half the team were into their 30s at this point is the last time we'd see you know quinsman um and mateus at a world cup and this wasn't um this wasn't a shock really i don't think not in the way that they had been humbled by bulgaria at usa 94 um i think it was given the way they played in this tournament as well it was you know it was more conceivable that yeah. um, uh, that germany could lose this and yeah and by the you know the next time we saw them at um, Euro 2000, as Rob said, they just uh, they were all over the place by that point, and uh, you know it took them a whole two years to recover and reach the World Cup final. <laughs> again. So uh, yeah. that's a strange, but, thing, isn't
2: it? They were an absolute mess at Euro 2000 and Euro 2004, and in between times, they reached the World Cup final. Uh,
1: yeah, amazing. Uh, w- one quick um, thing about um, the way this was covered in. England, actually, I mean, it's. I just think it's a bit indicative of the petty-minded attitude um, people have about, or some people have about the German international team because of uh, the defeats they've inflicted on England. Do you remember a, a program called Under the Moon? It used to be on Channel Four. <laughs> no,
0: oh yeah, and Danny w- Kelly.
1: Danny Kelly, yeah, and it would it would run through the night from like midnight to five yeah. o'clock, um, which I guess is intended to catch the uh, the pub audience there. Uh, or, or they all a... those
0: who are awake because they have uh, small babies crying. I can promise you yes, that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, yeah, so they did a top ten of um, the France ninety eight World Cup when it finished. And they put this game in it oh, twice. God. That's, that's, that's that's so pathetic, isn't it? It's just like to, you know
0: It's the banks, you know, uh, isn't it? It's the bad Yeah.
1: Are you still that bothered by, you know, Euro ninety six and Southgate Smith that, you know, you need to do that? I just thought I'll tell It's tedious, tedious, that whole thing.
0: I tell you what, it would still be in today. It would still yeah. be in today. Uh, but ban- let's move on. Just be banter, oh, well- lads. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. Not I said it's humour,
2: lads. Come on, lighten up.
0: Mm. Uh, I-, I made the mistake of uh, peeking into the sewer of Twitter this morning. <laughs> um, uh. Please don't. Please don't. Yeah. It wasn't about football. It was about something else. But just please don't. So to the semi-finals and the match that absolutely nobody refers to as the Citrus Derby—that's Brazil against Netherlands. Mike, do you want to kick <laughs> us off with uh, with this Titanic clash?
1: Yes, uh, as Rob said earlier, um, the third, just really great game of these knockout stages. Um, another game in Marseille, actually, night game this time. Um, yeah, brilliant game, just kind of ached with this uh intensity all the, the way through i love that stadium actually the old velodrome in marseille i've been yeah. there um before and it's uh, it's just it's like you're sat in a massive salad bowl or something just watching uh <laughs> you know it's all kind of exposed to the uh you know the mediterranean air around you and uh you know you've just got this amazing game going on in front of you and uh yeah, a tight game. Uh Brazil had Cafu suspended for this match. Um so his replacement in the, the only other right back in the squad was a guy called Zay Carlos, um, who was uncapped. And he made his one and only um appearance for Brazil in this game. Never Bonkers. played um I know yeah, your only game for your country is a World Cup um semi final. Um and yeah, it was a bit a bit of a slow burner, but it just gradually developed into this epic contest really so Brazil took the lead just after half-time really really nice goal actually lovely ball from Rivaldo um, out on the left in behind uh, the centre-backs and Ronaldo just kills it instantly first time on the run slips it through Uh, van der Zaal gets nutmegged again uh, with this finish the the ball goes through his legs Uh, that puts Brazil one up Um, there's a couple of tackles in this game actually that are Two of the best tackles I've ever seen. One's by Edgar Davids and one's by Frank De Boer. Uh, they're both on Ronaldo each time when he's virtually clean through one-on-one with uh, van der Zaar, and they just about prevent a goal. So the one by Davids in the second half when it's at 1-0. Uh, Ronaldo's through one-on-one straight down the centre of the goal and Davids just about gets back at him. I think he gets a bit of the ball and a bit of Ronaldo. it would probably get VAR'd for a foul now and Davids would get sent off but... It's a just a superb tackle, um, but the Dutch uh, came back uh, at Brazil towards the end, and then they equalised three minutes from time across from the right, um, which bit climbed and uh, headed in, and then I think I think it's at the end of um, normal time in in injury time that uh, I think the Dutch should have had a penalty. I think there's a there's a shirt pull on Van Heidonk in the box um, that wasn't spotted, so they could they could conceivably um, have uh, had a penalty to win it in the the very last seconds there. But um, it, and it went into goal and goal extra time, and that that was just a brilliant half hour um, where it could have gone either way. Cliver shoots just past the post. It's there's the first real big chance of golden and goal extra time. Um, which might have run it. Ronaldo goes on a run that, if he'd have scored um, in the second period of extra time, would have been one of the great World Cup goals of all time, I think. He sort of takes the scenic route around um, Frank de Boer, nutmegs, yap, stam, and just as he's about to shoot, Frank de Boer gets back at him, slides through him, really, to get the ball. Um, you know, so it takes man, ball, everything, and pokes it out. But uh, it was a stunning run. This is probably, I would say, Ronaldo's. Best game of the tournament. He was just, you know, for for all the Nike hype and all, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, he, he was absolutely electric in this game. This was like the, you know, the Ronaldo that blew everyone's mind when he when he burst onto the scene uh, with Barcelona a couple of years earlier. Um, but but neither side could win it in golden goal extra time, and then uh, on we go again to penalties.
0: Yeah, I remember reading a description when he was at. Um... Uh, Eindhoven, I think, with uh, Bobby Robson. Um, I may be wrong in the exact timeline there, but uh, I remember it stuck with me. It may be in the very early days of the internet as well, where I read it and it said that uh, Ronaldo was uh, PSV Eindhoven's raging bull, and he was a raging bull of a player, and yet he had such composure. Uh, as well, an extraordinary player uh, in danger of being slightly forgotten. I feel these <clears> days, um, but you know, in in the in the very top rank of uh, of great players, and definitely an all time great as well. Um, Rob,
2: yeah, I would say this is the last time globally we saw the best of Ronaldo because he didn't; it wasn't. He was only at the final in body, as we know. Yeah. Then he got injured for Inter. By the time he came back in 2002, it was a lovely story. But he was a heavier, less dynamic player by then. Still a brilliant finisher, but um, the the first Ronaldo was an astonishing player. Like the, the combination of speed, skill, and strength, I'm not sure anyone has had it to that at the same degree in football history. And the fact he could beat—I mean, Mike's right about those two runs, particularly the second one. That sudden explosion and change of pace was just devastating. And he almost redefined centre forward play. I know Henri has spoken a lot about how he watched Ronaldo, and also George Ware did it as well, but Ronaldo even more so would just beat players in the centre of the field, and to yeah. do that rather than out wide is just infinitely more devastating. Um, I, I think there's a case for him being the best young player ever. Um, you could p- pretty put Pelle and George Best in there as well, but I mean, what's he at this? He's 21 here, um, mm. just just a the most glorious player. I mean, everyone talks about his Barcelona um, season 96-7 understandably and he was, there were a couple of goals in that. There's a famous one at Compostela Compostela but there's another one that I forget who it's against but it's a game they had to win the 89th minute to stay in the title race and one moment he's on his arse 40 yards from goal literally on his arse watching the play and then the ball breaks towards him springs up suddenly through two players and scores. It, like The sheer speed of it is just mind-blowing. It looks, uh, football, you know, Old football looks slow, doesn't it? It's just the nature of evolution. But if you look at Ronaldo, particularly Barcelona now, it still looks like dizzyingly
0: fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, and uh, I'll just add one thing to mm. that, and it's an aside, of course. But um, in the Bobby Robson movie, he's interviewed in Portuguese and in English, and he comes across as the most charming, most affable of of men as well. I mean, mm. I'm sure. You know, he, 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 there'll be plenty of stories otherwise to that. But in a number of interviews in that in that film, you just think this is this is a, 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 you can understand why Robson really loved him as well. It's fantastic.
2: Mm. Um And just one other thing on the game: uh, the Netherlands really. Well, Bergkamp didn't turn up. That was a big thing. Uh, I don't know whether it's that kind of couldn't come down from... It's almost like a batsman who gets a double hundred and then fails in the next test because he can't come down. But he had a bad game. And they really missed Mark Overmars, who was injured. Um So he he could have got, say, Carlos with Cafu suspended, or he could have had a guy at Circus Act on the other side. And I think he would have made a real difference. Um So they missed him. They still played brilliantly and probably were more likely to win it in extra time. But... um yeah, I think with Overmars it might have been a different story, actually, because he got he didn't play much as the tournament progressed. He got, I forget what injury it was, but he couldn't shake it. And he, did, he didn't play at all in this game. They had Zenden on the wing, who was decent, but not in the same class. They went to penalties, and yeah, kind of the Netherlands had already gone out of multiple tournaments on penalties, 92, 96. Um, and it sort of looks inevitable. Taffarel was quite a good penalty saver. Brazil had won in ninety four in the final, and yeah, I think Philip Cocu and Ronald de Boer missed. It was over with one one kick to spare. Um, yeah, Brazil scored all theirs, and that was that. And I think uh, we we spoke about England how the fatalism only really started after about penalties after ninety eight, and I think that was probably the case for the Netherlands as well. I think by the time they got to Euro 2000 and they went to penalties against Italy. I think it was like really heavily, even though Italy didn't have a great record themselves, I still think it was quite heavily in Italy's favour because I think there was so much rubble in the um, collective psyche of the Netherlands. So it's a shame they were a really, really likeable side. Um, So kind of confident and comfortable, Um, clearly very well coached by Hiddink. Not just tactically, but also create quite a harmonious environment, which, as we know, isn't always the case. Um, Yeah, just a really good team. They would have been worthy winners, I think. But it's interesting also, even though they would have been worthy winners, they only won, I think, three games out of seven in the tournament. And two of those were last-minute winners. So it shows that the margins are quite fine. Um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, they're they're Margins, margins always are, and my margin to bring this uh, show in on time is diminishing <laughs> quite <laughs> rapidly. So I'm going to move us on to um, a it's that's, that's very important in the context, to think, of any uh, World Cup, which is the hosts in the semi-final, France against Croatia. Rob, do you want to kick us off with that one?
2: Yeah, quite. Um, I mean, first off, it's a bit of a non-event, really. Um, and then it all exploded a bit like. So Ronaldo scored in the first minute of the second half against the Netherlands, and Suka did likewise uh, for Croatia. Quite a calm finish. I think it was a Sanovic a reverse ball over the top. Um, but then it's a classic thing of. You could argue they scored too early, but I think it's more that they conceded too early. Churam scored straight away after a mistake. I think it was for Boban. Um, and kind of, uh, there wasn't time for France to panic or. To start to think the unthinkable, they would level up straight away. And I think that kind of calmed them down. Um, and then I'll let Mike talk about the winning goal, which was an absolute belter.
0: Yeah, just before you, you, you go to that, I always feel, um, whether it's for the team you're supporting or against, that when you score and then there's an immediate equalizer. It's not like the scores one-one. It always feels like the scores kind of one and a half-one, oh, yeah. isn't it? Mm. Yeah, you feel like you, you know, you you you're on serve if you like, or you've got the throw for the darts. Particularly now, like, if you're,
2: particularly if you're the home side coming from behind. Yeah, you can yeah. imagine it really flattens the
0: away side. Yeah. Uh, so, Mike,
1: uh, there's a really good film, actually, with um, I mean, it's in French, but you can get it subtitled as well of uh, how how France won this. Uh, this World Cup and it's, it's a lot of behind the scenes stuff and a lot of in the changing room uh, stuff with Amy Jacquet and the players and uh, at halftime in this game uh, because France hadn't played very well in the first half they get a spectacular bollocking from Jacquet <laughs> at halftime saying no one's passing no one's reacting if you carry on like this you're going to lose so to have that ringing in your ears and then to concede within 60 seconds you can't the French players must have been thinking. Um, Oh, you know this could get away from us here, and I, I love the Croatia goal actually. the the finish by Suka. It's, there's such a cold certainty about it. The way he brings it down and just prods it past um bartes and it's actually it's Touram that plays him on side. Actually, he's about oh, three okay. yards behind the rest of the French um, defense. So, uh, but but what a way to make up for your error. I mean, yeah, scoring. Um, I think I think it's Toram that robs um Boban. Boban in the end, and then plays a quick one too with Jokic and scores. And then his winning goal is just um, is brilliant. He just muscles someone off the ball on the on the right corner of the area, and then just whips a lovely shot uh, around the back of one defender into the far corner. His second uh, international goal for France, not long after his first, and they were the only two goals he ever scored for France. I think he got something like 130. Uh, caps didn't he something yeah, like that. Echo yeah. of
2: eighty four, wasn't there, with um Oh Demerge. Jean, Jean- yeah. Francois Demerge, yeah he scored his only two goals. He didn't play hundred and thirty times but he scored his only two goals in a an, a come from behind semi final win.
1: Yeah and so and this is uh, this is in the context of history this is a huge game for France. They'd lost three World Cup semi finals uh previously and obviously they've got the added pressure of being the hosts as well. So th- this was a this was a massive Massive game for them to get through, um, and yeah, and, and Croatia. You know, they they couldn't get any quads. I mean, the, the the sour note for France obviously is uh, what then happens with Laurent Blanc, um, who gets uh, who's, who's wrestling with Slav and Bilic. As uh, I think, I think they're both waiting for a corner to come in, or it might be a free kick. Uh, Blanc just turns to Bilic and pushes him. I think he means to push him in the chest, but he ends up lot. Pushing him slightly in the chin, uh, Billich hits the deck, um, Rivaldo two thousand and two style, and yeah, Blount gets a red card and subsequently is uh, is out of the final.
0: You know, I still hold that against Billich today. I I just pathetic. You've already heard you've already heard my overly romantic view of of football of sport, um, mm. and it really. Uh, poke that view in the eye, so to speak, if that's yeah. not extending the, the metaphor. And I still hold it against him today. There's lots of things. Obviously, I don't hold the stuff against Maradona or any of those things, but when Billich loses in a football match, I can't help, I can't help a little bit of of uh, a kind of uh, a slight spark goes off in my mind mm. and thinking, there's karma for yes, it." Really, there's think, uh, karma.
2: Generally, I really like Billich. It seems out of character. Yeah. It seems a fair and decent
0: and but when I push guess, came to shove, no, again it's right. not extending the metaphor. In a World Cup semi final, he had the cynicism to do that. And I think part of it is that Blanc took it with such equanimity. Yeah. Um he showed himself to be imagine how much, much, would have much taken... the bigger man. <laughs> what? What's that? I imagine
2: how Jerry Bart would have taken
0: it. <laughs> beat red well, card like quite. And um I think it was, it was because it was the home tournament. It was a World Cup yeah. final, and to be denied in that way, I, I, I there's very few things in life that I find unforgivable. But here's I, the thing. I, you may well, think it's, it's a bit minor, but I can't forgive. No, here's can't. The
2: why. Why didn't FIFA just overturn it? Everyone knew it was. I know technically you don't raise your hands and all that shit, but everyone knows it wasn't a red card. I suppose Brazil might have complained, but ultimately yeah, it was a terrible decision. Well, I think with we're, um, we're,
1: context, I think. Plays into a lot of how how people um, view these kind of things, and I think it it felt worse because Blanc was seen as this very statesman like figure in the French team. I think as well, very well liked. I mean, that's changed a lot given some of his uh, comments um, since he's gone into um, into management. But at that point, and he'd done so much to get them to the final as well. You know, he'd scored in the shootout. He'd scored that goal against. um, Paraguay and he was I think he was into his 30s at this point so there's yeah. an element of well it's, he deserves to play yes. in a World yes. Cup final and the point you make about it being a home World Cup I heard Roberto Baggio say something really nice on this once which uh, for some reason had never occurred to me before but he said um, it was about Italia 90 and he said to play in a World Cup, any World Cup is a really special thing but to play in a World Cup that your country's country is hosting I mean, that, that's once in a lifetime stuff so yeah. to be robbed of the final for, for something like that, I mean, uh, and yeah, he took it, um, incredibly. I mean, I'm sure he was burning up inside and I'm sure, in, I'm sure in private, he, did, he maybe didn't take it, um, as well as he did publicly, but, uh, yeah, it was a devastating moment for Blanc. Yeah.
0: Well, um, I'm mindful of the, the clock. So we we'll, can we, can we scoot over very briefly yep. the world's most absurd match?
2: Two things about it: Netherlands won Croatia two. Uh, Shukes scored the winner, and with it the golden boots. Um, Croatia third in the first World Cup. The other thing I remember about it is Zenden's like, bizarre celebration when he scored. He kind of gets four celebrations in one at the same time. <laughs> he tries to. It looks like he's going to jump and punch in the air, <laughs> and then he sort of tries to do a rollover. It's worth looking up. It's honestly, I can always remember Terry Venables just cackling relentlessly on ITV about it it was just it's one of the strangest celebrations i've ever seen um uh, and i have nothing else to say
0: he, he has cut something of an eccentric figure i think Buduán zenden in, in time since so it's perhaps somewhat keeping in in character mike have you anything to add to uh, Croatia's extremely laudable performance in their first world cup um
1: not really other than um yeah, I think we've made the point on another um podcast. I think it just feels cheap to sort the golden boot out in this <laughs> in this kind of uh, testimonial atmosphere. But a great achievement from Croatia to finish um third in their first World Cup. But as a, as I'm a I'm a pretty avid World Cup watcher, you know, whenever they're on I'll watch it on block, but this is the one game I just I really cannot be bothered with. No <laughs> so, very rare because- I can't remember the last one I watched, I think. I did watch the one in the last World Cup when England were playing in Belgium. But...
0: Particularly because, uh, like you, I'm an avid World Cup watcher, and you're consumed by the prospect of the the final, which which is often a disappointing game, but somehow you fool yourselves over and over again that we're going to get a, an all-time classic. You know, uh, We're going to get some people on the pitch who are thinking it's all over. But... Um, this was perhaps the dampest of dampest squibs of a World Cup final. Although I'm sure in uh, in Paris it didn't feel that way. Um, Rob, do you want to kick us off with uh, with the events that happened even before the uh, whistle was blown?
2: Yeah. Well, the, the build up to matches on TV is often you know fairly missable, but this was must see TV. It was just bizarre. There were constant rumours and counter rumours, and there's a line of holding up a team sheet without Ronaldo in it, with a Mundo in it then another one saying that Ronaldo was back in. Um, and obviously there's been uh, talk ever since about what actually happened. I think the official story is that he had some kind of seizure on the afternoon of the game, went to hospital, discharged himself, I think, ended up in the, came back to the dressing room. At that point, Edmundo was playing, but then he persuaded the coach to play. And this is the official version. I mean, I've heard so many, I'm sure you have as well, so many other rumours ranging from the unlikely to the absurd
0: um yes we should be wary of um, but there's always i mean there was broadcasting some of
2: there was a legal case wasn't there uh, in brazil to see whether nike's influence had been too great and there's a quote from that that's always stayed with me from ronaldo basically said something like it sounds a bit manic street preachers but he said something like um i'll tell you my truth it's up to you to decide this he said in the court. I'll tell you my truth. It's up to you to decide if it's the, the real truth or something like that. But basically there's a whole thing in Brazil about, there's a real culture of difference between fact and truth. Um, and that, you know, like how, how an individual perceives an event and so on. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's so hard to judge because we don't, ultimately we don't know what happened. I mean, if those events are true, That he probably shouldn't have played, but you just, well, he certainly shouldn't have played, but you think it's so difficult when you've got the best player in the world, he turns up, says he's fine, you can imagine everything's happening at 100 miles an hour, who knows what doctors are saying, you know, he announces he's going to play, it's just, it's very difficult, it's so easy in the cold light of day to say, well, this is absurd, the man should have been in hospital or whatever, but, uh, you know, people don't necessarily take rational decisions in such heightened circumstances. Um but what we do know is that the whole um whatever happened, the whole circumstances of it just flattened Brazil. I mean, they barely turned up for the game. And Ronaldo certainly didn't, they just looked really empty. Um which kind of which to me would reinforce the idea that their mate did almost die and that they were still in shock over it. But I mean who knows?
0: My, my favorite apocryphal story, I've mentioned this before, I think, on the, on the pod was that there was a blazing row going on, and the French team sort of were, were sitting in sort of gobsmacked silence while the extraordinary uh, row was coming through the, the wall from well, the uh, opposition. dressing uh, Ed, room. with,
2: with Edmundo's um, temper, I can't imagine he took the decision <laughs> to chuck him out of the 11 with too much equanimity.
0: Well, the, hmm. the, the the apocryphal story is that none of the French uh, spoke Portuguese, so they couldn't understand what was going on. Whereas somebody pointed out Robert Perez uh, had a Portuguese uh, father, I think it was, and had was at least sp- some understanding sp- of I Portuguese.
2: Thought he, I thought he had a Spanish father, but anyway, it doesn't matter.
0: Uh, it, again, it, it may be part of the mythology of, of this mm. now, but, but word was that, that, that Perez was understanding more of what was was going on but you know what goes in on in vegas stays in vegas and i don't think we'll ever penetrate the either dressing room uh to get to either the truth or a truth as as you point out but but mike do you want to uh finish that one off and then go through what we could laughingly call the highlights of this final Mm. which was the dampest of squibs
1: well two things about the ronaldo saga really is whether he should have played legally or Morally, I mean, there's there's a question over the timing of the team sheets being handed in. I think. Oh yeah, that's a good and point. Yeah, the first one that goes in has got Edmundo's name on it, and it, it's it's quite after the event. Actually, it's, oh, we got another team sheet, and actually Ronaldo is playing. Having but... said
2: that, you're, I agree with you, but are, aren't you allowed to? Ch- are you only allowed to change if someone gets injured in the warm up? Because you uh, are allowed to change, aren't you? But presumably, pre- this is different because you're actually putting someone in rather than taking someone out.
1: Yeah, I think so, and I just, I just think this is, this is so unprecedented for a, you know a World Cup final.
2: It's hard to convey, um, isn't it? The absolute kind of everyone was just all. I remember John Motson's voice, like reaching a new pitch, and just nobody yeah. knew what was going on.
1: And also, this, this isn't you know, this isn't a saga over Junior Biano. This is a saga about Ronaldo. You know, the, yeah. the best, uh, the best player in the world. And it's also, it's you know, morally, should he have played? I mean if he did have a seizure or a panic attack or, you know, whatever, whatever happened to him. I mean, the idea that you can play a game of foot any game of football, let alone a World Cup final after that is, you know, is a real reach. And whether they forced him out there, whether they should have done that or not, whether it was his own personal decision, there was a, there's an interesting exchange between, um, Alan Hanson and Jimmy Hill on the BBC, actually, where Alan Hansen said, um, Oh, well, even if a player's injured for a game of this magnitude, you've got to take. The <laughs> even risk if he's him. almost dead. <laughs> yeah, but like, but Jimmy Hill, you know, often um, derided figure, gave the counter argument: what you'd risk is you know, you know, yeah. mental health the rest of his career. Wonderful young player like yeah. that, and you'd, so they had this kind of like, really interesting. Um, back and forth but uh what, ultimately what we must remember
0: what we must remember is Jim, Jimmy Hill was to his dying day a PFA man and for mm. all of his faults in lots of ways when he spoke about players it was always worth listening to Jimmy Hill.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean the, 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 yeah he's got a really nice um angle of you know con, concern for the welfare of the of the players mm. I think which is really uh unusual really obvious but yeah so the, the, they did start with Ronaldo but uh as Rob said, it just flattened them. It also it it kind of you could see it when they were lining up for the photographs. Like Ronaldo was in the back row, yeah. uh, you know, when they take the photograph before the game. Um, and he went to the front row. and He tried to crouch down, and he couldn't crouch all the way down. He was obviously clearly in some kind of distress. And we we everyone kind of knew, or there were rumors circulating by that point of what had happened to him. And this is before you know. If this had happened in the age of Twitter, it would have you know gone you know, around the world like wildfire. But what it did was it took out the fear for France, I think, about... um, So they'd replaced Laurent Blanc with Frank LeBeuf. And a lot of the build-up was, is LeBeuf going to be able to cope with um, Ronaldo running out? But in that first half, I mean, France should have been two or three up. um, Or could have been two or three up even before they scored. I mean, they got this one ridiculous... um, chance they had where they got they got clean through in the uh, in the Brazil half. There were no defenders there at all. At half time Ali Mackay said it's like the back four of the Marie Celeste. I mean there was just no Brazil uh, Brazil players anyway. And Givash oh, just had a shocking first half. He he could and sh- maybe should have scored two goals. Um but his confidence was just dripping out of him with it, with each chance he missed. Um but France did eventually score twice in the first half, uh, both from corners, both from headers by, uh, by Zinedine Zidane um, that put them 2-0 ahead and it was thoroughly deserved, I think. And uh, I think a, a quick word on France in this actually is that all the excuses were there for them really not to win this final. You've got the enormous pressure of being hosts for one. You've got the fact that they hadn't played really that well in the knockout stages they were up against Brazil you know this this Nike super team that everyone was afraid of they could have bottled that final Mm. um, even with the Ronaldo saga quite easily but I've seen I think nine World Cup finals in my lifetime and this is the one really where the most impressive one where I've seen a team actually just go out and win it and just say you know we're having this this is ours I mean even withstanding everything that happened with the Brazil and Ronaldo. I thought they were fantastic in this game. I think this game is Zidane's real ascension to greatness, not just because of the two goals, but I've, I've seen this game back. He's magnificent in this game. Um, keeping possession, looking for the ball, showing for the ball all the time, taking the pressure off his team, running it from one half to the other to reset the game Brazil's half. Um, there is a school of thought uh, with some people about Zidane that he's... Got an overinflated reputation, but if if he's not in the pantheon of you know the greatest players that have ever played this game, I mean, I've, well, I've never seen one. Then I mean, and this was the start of that for him. I thought he was superb in this game.
0: Yeah, I, I I would concur with that, and you're absolutely right, Mike. There's a there's a kind of um, alternate world in the multiverse where we're saying, oddly. The shenanigans with Ronaldo affected France rather more yeah. and they were just never <laughs> able to get going. And the the, the essentially ten men of, of Brazil came together and and you know they, they didn't play well without their talisman, but it was enough to beat a, a stage struck French side. Uh, but and of course f- And Frank
2: LeBeuf hasn't been able to go home since. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, um, shall shall we just move in the last 15 minutes that we have here just onto some broader reflections? And I think you were sort of edging into that territory. Should we just uh, talk right, quickly well, about
2: the third goal? Oh,
0: oh yeah, go no, on. No, kind no, of
1: I love this goal.
2: Fairytale moment, last-minute breakaway. Arsenal player who had already won the double. Um, Vieira who come on a sub playing in Petit. And it, there's, a, there's something lovely about last-minute goals that are scored when it's already won. It's just that, like, you know, the whole cherry on the ice on the cake. Blah, blah, just something so romantic about it. And um, for Petit in particular, because he had had a fantastic season at Arsenal, um, emerged so strongly to the point that he kept Vieira out of the team in this tournament. Um, Vieira only came on a sub. Um, and I think there was a story that he went on holiday, put a quid in a slot machine and won about 20,000 or something. I, d- I don't know if that's apocryphal or not. Um, but yeah, it was just such a charming moment. Um, I mean, they were they were safe anyway. They were two lap Desai was sent off for two yellows, but they kind of had the game under control. Um, and then, yeah, that's just that, that the the most perfect moment really to finish the game and the entire tournament. The France because it meant so much to France. I mean, it's probably it's very hard, but I guess for us to understand where France was at the time culturally and how much it meant to win the World Cup with a team. From such diverse backgrounds, I think that was a really important thing. Um Yeah, comes... yeah just a great moment. It, that's it a great. Comes...
1: Uh... Go on, mate. Sorry, Gary. I was just going to say, it's a great because It's a real two fingers to uh, Jean Marie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, really. At the front, now who I think in the build up to the the final had made had made some kind of comments about you know this isn't a French team. Yeah. Um, you know because of the uh you know the ancestry of the players and all that kind of uh, bullshit, and then uh, so when they did win the uh, the evening uh, you know they win the final they project an image of zidane onto the, the champs elysee and the the petit goal you're right rob i think that's such such a wonderful moment i don't think it would be i mean obviously it would be well remembered in france if they if they just won it 2-0 but to get that moment at the end and i'd encourage actually we'll put the youtube link up on the twitter feed the tf1 commentary i don't know the guy's name but the the, the french commentary of uh, petit's goal And when that ball goes in the corner and it cuts to Chirac in the stands, you know, with his hands in the air, it's just such a wonderful moment for, for a country as well that have done so much to codify and form international football Mm. uh, at club level and, you know, at the national level as well. Uh, Obviously they'd won the Euros before, but you know, this is the world cup. It's, it was, and you know, it's in Paris. It was just such a brilliant moment. And to kind of, yeah, Chariot with that moment uh, from Petit. I think that's, in my life, that's one of the great World Cup moments, that goal. I think it's brilliant.
0: Uh, the first time I, I saw uh, Petit, I don't know if it was Hybrid or Goodison, um, it struck me that he was the least appropriately named footballer, I think, uh, ever, if George Best was <laughs> the most appropriately named. Because he's just huge and he's playing central midfield and you're thinking, you know, how does, how does this happen? Of course, players are, are bigger now, but it was a it was a shock, you know, because you, you were used to central midfielders being kind of like N'Golo Kante and Billy Bremner. And here was this giant of a man with a mane of, of blonde hair uh, playing a game at a, a pace that seemed entirely different. To the uh, rest of the uh, 22 players on the pitch, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I've mentioned before I was in Paris a few weeks later for the uh, final stage of the Tour de France, and it was still alive with the uh, with the celebration of the diversity of the of the French squad. And in reviewing the uh, Pennini sticker album, um, you see that 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 diversity that we now sort of Accept and take for granted um, was was fairly new. It was only a couple of World Cups earlier where uh, you begin to see it coming through with France and with Belgium and with Holland, but uh, not even as much with England. That you know you you see this very monocultural, very single heritage uh, squads looking back at you out of those uh, stickers. So to have to have uh, the the most diverse uh, team. Playing at home, which was their home, and celebrating it um, i think I think it was a moment, um, particularly because football was just divesting itself i think in in this country and in other countries it hasn 't entirely of course of uh, a, a quite close relationship with far right movements um, it, it was i think an important moment in how um, social Political and sporting events uh, came together, and uh, and it, it certainly did in '98. As it was acknowledged, as everything in France has to be, it was acknowledged on the streets of Paris. I remember speaking to um, some. Um, what were they doing in, in Paris? They were cleaning the streets on a Sunday morning before the tour was coming to town, and um, they were they were saying, you know, they they had the the phrase of the. Uh, I, I ought to remember this, but it was something like Blanc Noir. It was the uh, the African heritage, uh, the the Sub-Saharan heritage, the North African heritage, and the, the European heritage coming together uh, in the in the squad uh, to win. Um, but let's let's move on to some um, more sporting reflections. Uh, we've got about ten minutes to go, so. Um, uh, has there been a better world cup um that was something a question you put mike so i'll i'll give you first go at answering it
1: uh, i i don't think there's been a better world cup since um france 98 in terms of i mean i, I think it's probably one of the best world cups there's ever been i think if you, if you weigh everything into it you, the, what you would want from a world cup um great goals you know Legendary matches we talked about you know the three that um that are in the knockout stages it was, it felt so evenly balanced as well as it approached the end. I think we made the point in part one about how just how many good teams uh, were in this tournament, how many could have won if it lacked anything really, I would say it would be like an upset a real massive upset. I know Spain went out in the first round um but I don't think um that was you know, that much of a, you know, an, an earthquake of a shock kind of thing. Um, so it didn't have that, but I mean, it it had everything else. And I, I can't think of a a World Cup since then that, that that's had all those elements to it. You know, all, all those things that go into making the great World Cup. I don't. I, I personally, I don't, I don't know what you guys think, but I don't think there's been one that's uh, that's topped it since then.
0: Uh, I, I would say that the final took some of the gloss uh, off it, but we don't often get great World Cup finals. But I, 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 I agree to a large extent. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of other things. I, I, I loved Italy in 2006. I loved the iron will that they displayed, and it's not everybody's favourite. But to to set out to keep clean sheets and score. Uh, goals at the other end uh, to win and then deliver it was um, and the Italian commentary on the Del Piero goal uh, as well is just sensational. We've already talked about, but I think if you if you look across what is it for five weeks or something like that, six weeks, then yeah, it's it's right up there. Rob, um,
2: yeah, I would probably concur. I think. 2018 was decent, but I think 98 is better because there were more potential worthy winners and there were more classics in a knockout stage. There's become a a new thing, and it's a social media age thing, I guess, of hailing the best World Cup ever after about four days. Um, 2014 and 2018 both had better group stages than France 98. Um, But I think France 98, I I always think the legacy of a World Cup is Largely, I don't know, one part group stage, four parts knockout stage. Uh, France 98 was, yeah, uh, the best probably since 86, maybe 82 even. Um, I think there was plenty of drama and some real kind of incredible blockbuster moments, but all the time it was underpinned with quality. And I think that's a really important thing because, you know, I love Italian 90, but I know... Essentially the football stank. It was just the drama and the stories that I liked. Yeah. Twenty eighteen there were good bits, but ultimately there just weren't that many good teams, you know. England got to the it semis, worked. Croatia got to the final. Um but this I think Argentina I mean there were just loads of really good sides. Argentina, Netherlands, Brazil, Croatia, France, even England. Uh, so yeah, I I personally think it's the best probably since yeah, the eighties.
0: Well, something that we've we've talked about sort of in passing, but um, we'll throw it in there. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure I know what my answer is. Uh, but best goal, uh, Mike. I'll come to you again. Uh,
1: well, <laughs> <laughs> not bear um, camp
0: then for yourself.
1: I I you know that. And this, is, I mean, anyone who would know me would know this is hardly a flag waving <laughs> thing. But um, I I would say. I'd say Michael Owens against Argentina. I would have that just ahead of uh bur Berg, camps um against argentina um yeah I th- Owens goal that state I, I mean we we talked about context on the Bergkamp camp goal there's a context of the Owen goal as well you know his his age his precociousness um that point in the match. The game it was in, and you know how it all played out, and everything like that. I, I would, uh, yeah, i probably go for Michael Owen, just just ahead of Dennis Bergkamp.
0: Well, I, I completely agree with you. Um, well, one of the, well, it's not, it's it's not a compensation of age. It's actually the the opposite. Um, leaping out of my chair in the room just down the hallway, there where I, I watched uh, Owen's goal, um, I was thirty five years old. And I'm pretty sure either explicitly or implicitly I thought I'm never going to see a goal as good as that uh, for England in, in the rest of my lifetime. And here I am now, 57 years old, and I'm pretty sure that that <laughs> judgment <laughs> remains the case. Uh, we'll, you know, the, hope springs eternal and all of that. But uh, the, to do it in that environment with all of that context, with the exuberance of of Youth, the you know, it was just mainlining all the thrills that you could you could imagine, which made the 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 new more all a, all the sadder. But you know, we we those of us who love sport know that we can't have all a, uh, it can't all be peaks, and so we 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 accept the the valleys for it. But it was the peakest of peaks for an England fan too young to remember uh, nineteen sixty six for sure. Yourself, Rob.
2: I'm tempted to be a true hipster and say Clive against Argentina. <laughs> it's such a gorgeous team goal, but I think I would go just uh, just Bergkamp. Probably for two reasons. One, because it was a last-minute winner, and the other because I mean, they're quite similar, actually. Great first touch, beats Ayala, great finish. Bergkamp just had to do everything slightly quicker. Um, but I don't know we're going to get onto this, so I might as well do it now. I would probably have Owen as my best moment of the World Cup. Yeah. Partly to the personal context, and I can still picture those plastic glasses flying absolutely everywhere uh-huh. in the uh, student union bar. Um, and you're right, and and that's where the kind of his context comes in. You know, eighteen years old. I like I said part two. I genuinely thought I was seeing the emergence of the greatest English player ever, um, and it was just for an. I, I always think Paul Merson's face sums it up, just like wide-eyed, almost almost laughing at like, what the hell. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so that would be my best moment of the tournament but Bergkamp probably just about ahead as the best goal but I wouldn't I wouldn't call anyone a bad name on Twitter for suggesting otherwise
0: <laughs> uh, Mike your best moment
1: uh, I'll probably give that to I mean we've already talked about it uh, recently but uh, the Petit goal in the final I just think that's just such a great way to end a tournament um, you know amazing personal moment for him but uh for the whole country and that squad um the relief as well I mean uh, they knew they'd won at that point but to to have that as Rob said earlier that that moment it's just such a charm
2: of, isn't there to that moment
1: there really is and they've been under such pressure in that World Cup as well and had, had actually received a lot of criticism for the way they played um mm. during the tournament but that 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 Level of vindication, and there's almost a relief to it as well. Yeah. When it goes in, you know, like it's over, that's it. Um, I mean, you know, what I'd give to experience, you know, if you could bottle that moment and, you know, yeah. live it for 10 seconds, it must be amazing.
0: I, I'll give you a slightly different take because I, you know, I could go for those or, or, or half a dozen more. But I, uh, a different take and a personal one is, um, at, in 98, I'd been living in, in Tooting for 12 years, and, you know, I Jesper was uh, one year old, and he was, I think we'd already sort of had to put him on a list to go across to the, the school opposite to a primary school. I you know Tooting is a very multicultural area, and I was already very attached to Tooting, and because of that, or, you know, it's chicken and egg, really, which which came first, it was someone who grew up in a monocultural uh, Liverpool at the time in the 70s and into the early 80s, and it was monocultural. Um, my vision and my hope and my uh, wish was for the world to look a lot more like like tooting. Um, and there was a moment on the 10 o'clock news or Sky News at midnight or whatever it was, because you... you you know, wake all crazy times of the day when you're a, a new parent um, where they cross to kind of Paris saying that uh, that half a million are on the streets of the Champs-Élysées or whatever it was. It was probably a million or, or the billion that, that watched the Eurovision Song Contest or whatever it was. And you're right, it was the it was the projections of Zidane onto the, the Arc de Triomphe at uh, L'Etoile and stuff like that. And I knew Paris pretty well so it wasn't quite like Um, the centre of London but it was as close to the centre of London as as you could get and I thought that that was a vision of the triumph of a world that I wanted for my one-year-old son to grow up into Uh, I wanted that to succeed Um, I wanted that world uh, to be the world that that in 2020 we would look back and, and say in 1998 we could see the the green shoots of that of that microcosm of Tooting or the microcosm of the different heritages all coming together and let's face it how well that worked out uh, how well that worked out um, so it's a it's a slightly different kind of moment, but it, it it was one that that meant a lot to me, and I think it was the personal circumstances as well as the uh, as well as the uh, images of the Champs Elysees uh, in the immediate aftermath of the of the win. Okay, um, we'll look at the uh, to finish off our deepest of deep dives into France '98. Uh, we'll look at the all star team of the uh, tournament. There are appropriately four sections here, so I can rotate through uh, the two of you, uh, Mike and Rob. So we'll start off with you, Rob, if uh, if that's okay, looking at goalkeepers.
2: Yeah, so a 16-man squad, so they have two <coughs> goalkeepers, uh, Fabian Barthez of France and uh, José Luis Chilavert of Paraguay. Um, wouldn't really argue with either. Uh, Chilavert was one of the personalities of the tournament, he almost scored as well played brilliantly against France when Paraguay went out in the last sixteen. Barthez is an interesting one because I I don't remember him having a huge amount to do, but he was he did he did it with a lot of authority. I mean, it's a shame that he's remembered for six months when he completely lost the plot at United and started making some of the weirdest mistakes I've ever seen. But for a long time, particularly for France, he was a fantastic goalkeeper. I thought he was even better at Euro two thousand actually. Um uh, so, yeah, i I a few others. You know, Paluca made some good saves. Uh, and there were a lot of high-class goalkeepers, actually, in the tournament, of Seaman being another, Schmeichel. But I wouldn't have a problem with those two. Any Anyone else?
0: No, I always liked um, the slightly... It became a kind of showy thing, didn't it, with uh, Laurent Blanc with Kiss the Bald Head, oh, yeah. Fabian mm. Martez. But you've got to have some personality as a goalkeeper. And I think both of them did have that but you're you're right Bartes is remembered more for his career in England now but he was really outstanding in that tournament uh Mike yeah
1: I, yeah, I think it's, it's it says a lot about us as a culture I think that we that we, we uh, traduce someone like Fabian Bartes constantly as a figure of fun you know a guy who's won uh the European Cup I think with Marseille isn't he and you know he's won the World Cup and he's won the European Championship, but you know, because <laughs> a couple of shots have gone through his legacy in the Premier League <laughs> or whatever. He's uh, he's yeah, uh, was he's was off, rubbish but, against Reading
2: likewise, in that game. Likewise, Laurent Blanc.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. But um yeah, I was I, looking at these two goalkeepers. I can't, I can't think who you would put ahead of either one of them. No, really. I see. Um so you know, you know, Vandersar, Seaman, Schmeichel—they're all, they're all lots of you because lots of good goalkeepers at that tournament. But uh, th- those are the two most memorable ones, I think, certainly.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder about Seaman because I think it was his best tournament for England, and I think at his best, Seaman was was pretty good. Uh, I don't quite hold with him being an all-time great, but I—if uh, I, he's in a fairly long England career. Um, if, you, if you're going to have him as goalkeeper of a tournament, this would be the one. I uh, think, 96,
2: can... surely? Really? I thought well... he was terrific in 96. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Scotland yes. and Spain in particular. Not, not Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Mike, Mike will know more because he wrote the book on it, but I, I yeah. thought he was terrific in 96. That's, that's a fair point I don't think, think he was right. bad in 98. Don't get me wrong. I just think he made more big saves in terms of difficulty and importance in 96 than in uh, 98.
0: But that's just my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair point, Rob. Uh, shall we move to defenders? Actually
2: just quickly, but, but you're what, you're right to say he was better here than in two thousand when he really was struggling. And yeah, there was that famous was. Spanish journalist who said Seymour was a piece of like a piece of meat with ice when well, lost left Portugal. <laughs> it's always stuck in my head, which incredibly harsh because he wasn't particularly at fault for any of the goals either. But
0: anyway, hmm. that's another story. So we'll we'll go to the defenders, Mike, and I'll I'll read them out first because there's there's a few of them. So uh the defenders in the All-Star uh, team are Roberto Carlos, Marcel Desailly, Lilian Turam, Frank De Burr, and Carlos Gamara. Mike.
1: Well, I mean I like Roberto Carlos as an attacking fullback, but I mean this feels like a bit of a celebrity pick here because yeah. you know he had he had quite a few uh uh jodgy moments in the tournament um, defensively. Uh, I think, yeah, I don't think you can argue with the, the rest. I thought Frank de Boer was magnificent in this yeah. tournament. I, I really liked him as a player. Um, I wonder if Blanc's submission maybe is linked to his uh, sending off. I don't know when they would have picked this. Um, but, yeah, you know, Desai, Desai, Toran, both fair inclusions. Gamara, uh I think Rob touched on in the previous part, had a really good tournament for Paraguay. It's interesting, really, as we're going to go through these 16 players. There's only six different countries represented here out of the 32-team and, and, World Cup. So it Paraguay, feels quite narrow.
2: And Paraguay have two players, which is interesting. Um, yeah,
1: and Denmark have two. I'm not... I think
2: ha- I th- no, go on, go on.
1: I was going to say, the one... The one player I would probably have in there that isn't uh, I thought Sol Campbell had a magnificent yeah. uh, tournament. He got like a real, you know, and he was, you know, an emerging star and he went on to have a great career. But I, I, yeah, I thought he was brilliant in this I'm,
2: tournament. I'm not having Roberto Carlos at all. I think no. that's absolutely um, far. I would have Liza ahead of Campbell purely because he's a left back. And if you're going to kind of pick it with the idea of picking an 11, yeah, I would have. But I agree. I thought Campbell was brilliant. You could put him ahead of Gamara. I wouldn't have a. Probably the way the and De Deborah are, are no brainers, I I would agree with that.
0: Yeah, I, I sometimes get mixed up as to which tournament, but um if you're asking me to to pick uh the the best eleven I've ever seen, certainly in, in tournaments, then Vicente Lizarazoo is is in there. I thought he was just everything you want from a full back, rock solid, disciplined, tremendous creative force. Um how he is not in this uh list of defenders, but I may be extrapolating a little bit to, to 2000 when an already good French side um, stepped forward and became a great French side, so I, 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 I could be corrected on that. So we move to midfielders, and I'll come to you, Rob. We've got Dunga, Rivaldo, and Michael Laudrup, Zinedine Zidane, and Edgar Davids.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. This is where it sort of blurs between midfielders and forwards. You know, what you categorise yeah. Laudrup, Rivaldo, even Zidane to, to an extent as. I don't have a particular problem with any of them, but there are some who I think were might have been worthy inclusions. Uh, Ariel Ortega, in particular. Yeah. Um, again, whether he's a midfielder or a forward, you he, he can argue either way. But I would probably have had him in, possibly Varane as well, who I thought was majestic at times. Um. I'm trying to think of any others, really. Um, I mean, you could you could actually make a case for Paul Ince, um, but almost purely because of his performance against Argentina, it was that good. Um, but I think they're all fine. I mean, Dunga was pretty solid as always, even though Brazil did let in quite a few goals, and the others were all influential. Davids was sort of reaching his peak years. He had the great Spurs, part of that great Juventus side. Um yeah, I'm trying to think of any others. Really, um, you could maybe make a case for Deschamps or Petit, but it's, it's you know mu- almost much of a muchness with those defensive midfielders because they're all pretty sound. Um,
0: there is a little bit of of kind of Garth Crooks Elevens that he puts up on the BBC website that there's a an overemphasis on goal yeah, scorers Maradona and so right on. I mean, midfield. Petit has to be in that in that midfield, doesn't he? I mean, Possibly, I'd have him ahead of Dunga, but. It just in terms of balancing it out, um, you'd have to have. I mean, Petit was fantastic in the tournament, but um, you know, these these things are always judgment. Uh, Mike, what was what would your view be?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't think there's much to argue with. I, th- I would say. If you look at the whole tournament and how everyone played there I think Michael Laudrup feels a bit like a lifetime achievement <laughs> yeah, to me. yeah yeah Jimmy I yeah. mean I I, I love him and he's a great player but I don't think he say had a better tournament than than Veron um yeah. Dung, <laughs> Dunga good. is in there I think is that's at least there's an attempt in this one compared to if you see the USI 94 one it's laughable really I think they pick a 3-4-3 with four attacking midfielders <laughs> so so it's, it's, um, done and yeah, damage in this one. Yeah, yeah. So it's done with an idea of like, well, this, this squad might actually have to go out and, uh, play then. Cause everyone does the kind of counter argument if they pick a fancy team, it's never going to play anyway. So it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But it's like, oh, you'll never get the ball off them. It's like, well, you never get the ball to them either. Cause like you've got, <laughs> you've got no one in there to, uh, to go and fetch it. But, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think that's pretty fair. I mean, or Tiger, I would. Pro- you could argue for, but I probably would have put him in the forwards anyway. Yeah, no. that's, <clears throat> fair point. Rather than, but uh, yeah, no, no real, uh, no real quibbles with anything else.
2: So,
0: so let's go to the forwards. Uh, we have Ronaldo, Davos, Uke, Brian, Laudrup, and Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp, uh, Mike. Yeah, I thought, well, I
1: think. Um... Bergkamp feels to me like a little bit of a strange one. I mean, it's a. I think that's the power of one just tremendous goal, masking the fact that he didn't have a great tournament here compared to, if you think about the season he had the year before and the, the Arsenal double-winning team, he probably had a better World Cup at USA 94 actually in terms of... Um, his performance level. Um, yeah, emissions, I guess, butter stewed is the one that sticks out to me. He had a really great tournament. Yeah, well, I thought he had a really good tournament. I,
2: I'm with Chris Freddy on this. He's a rabbit killer, basically. I, <laughs> I, he basically he, he was shit against England, or he scored a penalty. All right, he almost scored against Holland, but he didn't do a lot. I, no, I, I, oh, I don't know. I don't agree with that at all. If you look at his record in World Cups, there's a hell of a lot of goals against either penalties or against poor teams. Don't get me wrong. I, I absolutely love Batistuta, and his goal against Arsenal at Wembley is one of my favourite goals ever. But mm. I'm just not sure that he did that much personally at this World Cup.
1: Yeah, I mean, he's uh, he's well, I, I suppose well, Suka's in there, and Suka's kind of a, a finisher as well, isn't he? He's you now he just kind of, yeah, he but he, he did it against things, better,
2: but... better teams, I would say. Batistuta, yeah. did he get a card trick against Jamaica? Was it, or was it Japan? I always forget. Uh,
1: Jamaica when he got the winner against Japan. Yeah, and I, and I mean, yeah,
2: but I, I, I mean, yeah, I take your point. Um, I don't know. I just don't. Yeah, I always thought he was slightly overrated internationally. Would yeah, did you, you put? You... I put Owen in there ahead of yeah. Camp and I'd put probably yeah. If you put Ortega in, I mean Brian Laudrup, I don't have a problem with, but I'd still probably put Ortega ahead of him. I I can't yeah. fathom why Michael Owen's not in there though. I know they've well, been think... in the last sixteen, and he only started two games, but. Come on, the impact he made.
1: Yeah, I mean, for you know, for what he did and the time he had, I think yeah, Owen has to be in there. You could probably make that ar- argument for Cliver as well. He made a yeah, tremendous difference to that Dutch team. I think game, he did right? more than
2: Bergkamp. It's interesting. I mean, Owen. I know I, I, there's a danger of being a bit parochial, but uh, even Maradona said Owen was the only decent thing to come out of France '98, which I think is pushing it. But the point is, he did have a broader impact. I would. He's the only England player I would definitely have in.
0: I mean, Owen was was like one of those fireworks that that gets set off, and you sort of hear it go off, and you're thinking, "Well, what's going to happen now?" And then there's this, this enormous boom and. Uh, starburst as uh, as it the yeah. firework explodes. Bergkamp- and, you know, the is question it? is, what do you remember about the firework? The sort of <laughs> uh, the the the, the fifth, the sort of ten seconds ascent or the starburst? What well, do you remember? The starburst. Birdcapper, really. There Bergkamp had
2: a really up and down tournament, didn't he? Uh, mm. Yugoslavia should have been sent off. Also scored a slightly dodgy goal. Argentina had a diabolical game, apart from two moments of utter genius. And then went missing against Brazil. It's really interesting. I don't know how you kind of put all that into a broader assessment. Yeah. I probably yeah, wouldn't could have maybe, him in the squad personally, but I can understand why they did.
1: Yeah, you could, in the forwards. You could maybe try and make a case for Vieirian. You know, Salas individually had a good World Cup, even though sure yeah. um, didn't win a game. But I think with Owen, it's it's because he's not in this list. Um, it's this is the danger of like when people look back now and remember things solely through you know they look at football just through the prism of things like this. The the impact of Owen gets kind of lost a bit. I think this for Gascoigne as well at Italian nineties. Amazing to look back at that. Prozanski
2: got the young player, didn't he Young oh, player, yeah. And yeah. But...
1: yeah, and Gascoigne wasn't shortlisted on the. Um, There's a shortlist of six for best player, but it's like if you watch, he was amazing. In that's that and yeah. that's not just you know us being parochial or anything, <laughs> but yeah. just. Uh, he was brilliant but um,
0: yeah I mean often with these uh, kind of polls I I remember saying to Jesper that uh, that, you know in, in county cricket dressing rooms when you were cricketer of the year they'd sort of um, the old pros would put Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck on them, and then they'd hand them to the uh, to the kids who uh, were on the ground staff and say, "Well, you fill them in for me or something." But actually, there is a little bit more weight to this uh, selection because it is the kind of technical committee, and you know FIFA always sort of puff out their chests and they sort of look terribly important while they make pronouncements like it's the Treaty of Versailles when they're they're talking about their uh, their. Uh, all-star team. So I think there the you know for all of its pomposity there is some weight in 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 this and uh yeah I am surprised that that Clive doesn't get a mention and I'm surprised that that Owen doesn't get a mention but sometimes you know particularly I think there's a there's just a, a kind of natural come unwillingness to to acknowledge that that young players are or people who are breaking through really are as great as we think they are and looking at those 16 players there I don't think many of them are under the age of 25 uh, looking at them uh, there so we all know that in any squad that wins a World Cup you've got very important players who are in their early 20s sometimes even younger than that Um, but it's it's a slightly older without too many sort of really old players and I think all of that kind of plays into it a little bit. Yeah, that's um, a good point that. Should we go to the uh the, the golden ball, which is uh player of the tournament? Is that is that right, Mike? You know much more about this stuff than I do.
1: Yes, that's right, yeah.
0: So um it was uh, Ronaldo, uh who was almost the not a player of the uh, final. In some ways of of course he was also not a player of the final. But um Mike, what do you what do you reckon on, on that?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think then as now they, they, they tend to announce this. Um on the eve of the final um so so this wouldn't take into account what happened to him in the final i don 't think but um it, even even remembering that I, I do think he was the best player of this tournament, Especially from the knockout stages, i think he he kind of he really went up a gear, i think as well he's brilliant against Chile um he didn't score against Denmark, but he actually he lays on two of the goals he, he plays Rivaldo in and he does a lovely reverse ball for Babto to put um put Brazil level in that game and was you know fantastic in that semi-final and uh this world cup is how I think of Ronaldo when I think of the world cup I don't my mind doesn't go to 2002 and that daft haircut and you know his redemption and that golden ball this is more the way I want to remember him and certainly not from um you know 2006 you know and he was um he did break the the all time scoring record then but um was out of shape and Brazil what played really really badly. Um that was yeah, another it
2: that, that was another triumph for Roberto Carlos defending that tournament. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tying his shoelaces when Omri scored the winner. But anyway, so I should stop picking on him but it just does my head in a bit.
1: Yeah. So I mean yeah you you I mean I guess the I don't know. The airbrushed retrospective uh, view of this might be to give it to Zidane because he gets the two goals in the final. But before that, you know, he hadn't. um, He'd been sent off. He'd missed a couple of games, obviously, Um, and he didn't really leave a major imprint on the tournament until the final. So. Yeah, I, I don't see how you can give it to anyone other than Ronaldo. Really. It's
2: interesting that Zidane's tournament was almost like Euro 2000 in reverse. In Euro 2000, he was awesome for pretty much the entire tournament except the final when he went missing. Here, he mm. was kind of the opposite. He was fairly anonymous and then played brilliantly in the final. Uh, I, w- I would completely agree with Mike. I think, I think the most influential factor in the World Cup was probably the France back four, but I don't know how you split the vote with that. So I would give it to Ronaldo just for the sheer exhilaration. It it kind of brought the exhilaration of the Olympic 100-meter finals to the World Cup. Um, And I don't think anyone has done that in quite the same way since... Uh, And yeah, like Mike said, there's no comparison, really. He was... Ronaldo version 2.0 was a brilliant goal scorer, but Ronaldo 1.0 was just basically a monster from the future. Just absolutely incredible to watch. And played... Either scored or made a large portion of their goals. I mean... One of the great what ifs, really. What would have happened in the final had he been uh, okay and match sharp and everything? We'll obviously never know. But yeah, I, I don't think there are too many other contenders, really. Um, I certainly agree that Zidane wouldn't have deserved to win. It may be one of the defenders, but how do you split them? You know, they're all so good. You might say Desai, but then you think, well, he was sent off in the final. I know it was awarded before the final, but we're talking about it now. Like, who was the best player? So yeah, that's a very long winded way of saying I agree.
0: Yeah, I think you've you've convinced me. Um, kind of my, my head says it has to be one of the the French back four. Um, but you know, how do you split them? There's arguments that can go against them for the reasons that you you've given there. And you know, just maybe if a if a tournament as in two thousand and uh, two thousand and six uh, if a tournament's Best player, and I, I think he retrospectively got the the Golden Ball. I'm not I'm not sure. It was uh, Fabio Cannavaro, mm. um, and he plainly was the best player in 2006. Then um, it kind of just feels a little bit a little bit wrong. You shouldn't watch six weeks of football, this glorious uh, celebration of the game that comes around every four years, and then find someone. Who made good tackles and was positionally sound and cleared a lot of corners to be the uh, the best player? Didn't Oliver
2: uh, didn't Oliver Kahn get it in two thousand two? I think yeah, so. I think was he both did. Both a goalkeeper and one who didn't win the tournament.
0: Yes, it's extreme. And then made a mistake in the final, having yeah, been yeah. awarded beforehand. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna join the uh, join the consensus and say uh, Ronaldo with one or two kind of caveats. Uh, perhaps the, the main one being we didn't really see. Ronaldo at his uh, extraordinary best, or albeit, or maybe only in, in glimpses. But um, yeah, fair enough. So, uh, closing remarks, gentlemen. I've kept you for longer than I promised, but um, uh, Mike, uh, closing remarks on a three-pronged look at France '98.
1: Yeah, just a, a great World Cup um, happened at you know a. a kind of perfect point in my life you know i was at university i had the when well, my exams were done anyway I had the perfect window to kind of watch the whole thing on block and that's probably the last time i've I've had the uh the chance to do that i thought it, it took place at a really interesting time for football it felt like a bit of a tipping point really if you look at what was going on um around them so it's just after the 98 World Cup I think that's the, the season after is when they, they expanded the Champions League um, to include teams that weren't champions um, within a year the European Cup winners Cup was gone um, you had because of the Bosman ruling and things you started to have the the rise of super clubs so yeah Roberto Carlos Ronaldo uh, Zidane Beckham oh, and they all ended up in that Galacticos uh, Project didn't they? I think the the way football was being viewed and players were being viewed was starting to change. We mentioned earlier, you know, you had the, the corporate giants like Adidas and Nike were um, starting to get heavily involved in the marketing of players, and I think the 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 early um, sort of ways we now look at um, football players or the way some uh, people evaluate footballers, you had things like Opta started around this time, I think. You know, you had Championship yeah. Manager, Fantasy Football. You know, players were now being looked at in terms of what they contributed individually more than ever. That that kind of started around that tournament, has now you know has it, reached the the level it has today. And the uh, and I think that kind of plays into a lot of the the marketing and you know the idolatry of um, individual players being the way it's now. And I think you know Beckham was a an early. Um, example of that you know someone who's very aware of his um, his image rights and uh, his own personal worth and you know how that could be uh, exploited I think a lot of that with him played into um, some of the reaction that he got f- for his sending off in England I mean I think obviously there are other factors at play there which we've um, which we've talked about now but you know if you look at you know all players have a kind of handle on that now and and guided in that direction by their agents so i just think beckham was the uh, the prototype of all that really and um yeah the and the world cup uh sort of changed a bit after this as well it was the, the next world cup would be would leave latin america and europe for the first time uh would be played in asia and would be uh you know there'd be one after that 2010 played in africa so uh yeah how how the tournament um uh, sort of developed after this started to change. So um, yeah, just a brilliant tournament, a, a sort of really interesting influx time in the game as well. I think.
0: Well, I think that's uh, that's a, a whole new podcast that you've uh, opened the doors on with those uh, remarks, Mike. And I, I, I haven't got you're... another two hours. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I remember. I remember reading that the NBA had fallen to the fourth level of American sports. Be. Behind even ice hockey, uh, obviously American football and baseball, and that one of the things they decided to do was market it instead of a competition uh, between clubs as a platform for uh, individual brilliance of players. And the uh, the leading figure in that was Michael Jordan with uh, with Nike and stuff like that. And and I think the marketers were. Were grabbing hold of um, football much more strongly. We've already mentioned a number of times Nike's tie in with with Brazil, and I think you're absolutely right, uh, Mike, that this, in some ways, it was, it was, you know, a fantasy echo. It was the last major tournament of the 20th century, if you sort of, you know, count it as 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 2000 being and in 21st century. And, it, you know, looking back, you can see strands that you can pull out of it that, that make a lot of sense uh, from there. But um, my my recollection or my summary was it, it, it was enormous fun. And if we have an exact rerun of uh, the 1998, if you like, with different personalities uh, in a World Cup for the rest of my lifetime, then I'll be very happy. Um, because there are many ways in which it can be uh, derailed, and there are always ups and ups and downs uh with a World cup, but it had operatic uh matches it had a, a brilliant narrative that was beyond uh a football field and um it had uh it had personalities. And aesthetics and an and awful lot going for it for all of the imperfections because sport has ever reflects life and life is full of imperfections as well as glorious highs. Uh, Rob, we'll give you the last word. Um,
2: yeah, not much time really. I think I think the legacy is the first corporate World Cup is fair, but also it, it's unfair in the sense that there's so much more to it than that, and actually it actually was yeah. a brilliant World Cup. I think this is. And you can make cases for other periods, but I'd argue this was the last golden age of international football. It was only a short period, but if you have this and then it's followed by a magnificent Euro 2000, um, only lasted two or three years. But I think that's the last time international football was like really, really exciting back to back great tournaments. Uh, And with just with that openness, and I I don't understand why it was the same in club football around this time, and it didn't last long. But there were so many teams who just wanted to attack and win, and actually, you kind of get that now more in club football, but not so much internationally. Uh, It was just a really good time to watch football. There were just it's quite simple, really. There were just a hell of a lot of fantastic players, and I don't think that's romanticising it because you know I don't feel the same about the mid nineties or the mid two thousands. But yeah, just that period from, I don't know, maybe 98 to 01-ish, I just think it was a great time to be watching football. Uh,
0: I, I I agree with you, and I'm going to give some credit to um, Set Blatter uh, there, because he <laughs> said... well, he, he, I, I often give him credit, because he did take the world globally, as, as Mike has uh, pointed out, and took the World Cup to uh, regions and countries that would never have had any hope, I think, under, uh, under previous regimes. But he also said that um, a player was not going to be kicked out of the game as uh, as Marco Van Basten was. And I think we see in this World Cup that the refereeing, which now may be too hard line, especially with VAR and so on, it did allow players to express themselves and it didn't need sort of VAR and complicated rule changing and all of this kind of thing. We saw the a, a, a game of football that we grew up with but we saw great players able to express themselves without sort of good, gear chair I think that's or, a really good point. or Shirea or someone coming through the back of them.
2: It's a kind of short window. I know it's a bit simplistic, but it's a short window between old football and new football. Old football is a bit too thuggish. New football is a bit too sanitised. Yeah. This kind of period was right in the middle, so you got the best of both worlds to some extent. Yeah, yeah I, also, I,
1: if I could just come in on that, I think the, the morphing of the Champions League into this, the competition it is now, I think has a huge impact on the way you know if international football is going to continue in any form. You know, you need the the most celebrated players in the world to impact on the World Cup, the Euros, all this kind of stuff. And you know, they did in France '98. You know, Ronaldo did Zidane if you look at point. the the way you know, say Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar, the great celebrated players of uh, I don't know, say the last sort of ten years. You know, they haven't really transferred what, what they do in the Champions League over to the the World Cup in the same way. Could I you, think that's a big difference.
2: Could you also argue this is the last time the World Cup had primacy over the Champions League? Because Champions League could only have one season of inviting non-winners in, so it wasn't really the monster it became. You could argue by 2002 it had become a bigger thing. Certainly it had affected the schedule had affected a lot of the players because they all turned up in Japan and Korea absolutely knackered, didn't they? So maybe, mm. maybe that's pushing it but I think you, you could argue it was the last time when international football had primacy
0: uh, uh, just, I'll throw one other thing in um, there was no excuses in this tournament uh, 94 I hated those stadiums that they played and it looked terrible and there was talk of pollution and talk of you know, it was too hot or too humid just... uh, everything was right about about France the, sta- uh, the stadiums were yeah. good it wasn't too hot they were, the matches were on at the right time of day Um, A lot of those, you know, hygiene factors, as they call it, kind of in organisational sort of management and stuff like that, all just fell into place. And it's not often in World Cups before or since where you get that kind of um, platform. Those foundations just gave the players fewer things to worry about um, and no excuse for not uh, delivering and no excuse for not looking great. I mean, I might even throw the pitches in on that because pitch technology was, was reaching new heights and, and, you know, everything they played on was a carpet and was, was beautiful, which is not the case in, in world cups uh, before that. It's I, a really
2: good point though you know, more, more than most world cups, it felt like each stadium had its individual character and
0: atmosphere. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, good point.
0: And looking at South Africa, you just knew these were hideous white elephants in which mm. God knows what was done to get them constructed. And it had, and it'll be even more, I think, with Qatar, it had a, a feel of artifice about it for all the joy of an African World Cup. Even, you, um,
2: even it, Germany in 2006, I'm not sure why, but it felt like they were much more kind of. It, Identicate. I couldn't Yeah. I think I could tell you loads more venues where games were played in France 98 than in Germany 2006 because they stuck out for whatever reason you know like Marseille Bergkamp's goal or Saletti in England or whatever it's an interesting point that yeah
0: well, let's wrap it up on uh, on that. And um, we've thrown a few strands out that we may explore in future uh, Ness and Dormers. So if, you've, if you're if you coming to the end of all three of our episodes, <laughs> uh, well done. A, a golden ball for you. Um, but we hope you've enjoyed it even half as much as as, as we have. So it remains only for me to thank uh, Mike Gibbons. Thank you very much, Mike.
1: Thanks, Gary. Pleasure.
0: Rob Smythe. Thanks, Rob. Cheers. And I've been Gary Naylor. And in the background is our founder, Lee Calvert. And we hope to have him around at some point uh, in the future of season four of Ness and Dorner. Thank you for listening.